When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, Unshaken Saints. It's great to be back with you. I'm Jared Halverson, and today we have a lot of material to cover. Section 51 through section 57 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Last week we covered 49 and 50, and there was a lot of doctrine there. Uh, next week we'll cover 58 and 59, a lot of amazing doctrine there as well. But st uh, stuffed in between these seven sections that we're going to cover today, it's less doctrine and more administration. And for some people, they look at these kinds of revelations and think, well, is a revelation even needed? Uh, how are they running the church? What are they supposed to be doing? Uh, historically, what's taking place here is the saints. I mean, we've had all kinds of missions going back and forth. The Lamanite missionaries go down, going down to Missouri. Uh, swinging through Kirtland on the way, and now you have these New York and Pennsylvania saints that are migrating to Ohio to gather there, right? To receive the law of consecration and to be endowed with power from on high to build the temple. But there's still this sense of what about what's going on in Missouri? And so you have these two different, oh, not quite headquarters yet, although it'll soon be that, uh, two, two main gathering places of the church. And what's really on the prophet and the other church leaders' minds is how do we settle people? Uh, Edward Partridge has that question. I'm the bishop. I'm supposed to be taking care of these temporal kinds of affairs. How do I do this? And so a lot of the revelations that we'll study today, 51 through 57, will have some of that how-to kind of feel to them. From a theological perspective, we might come across these revelations and find them wanting in some ways. Although I hope as we go through them, we realize just how infused with gospel principles they are. But in terms of how to run the church, uh, administrative types of things, these revelations are key. So please don't consider these a lull in the action. Okay, uh, some powerful principles last week. I'm really looking forward to the things we'll talk about next week. But don't slide through or skip over the kinds of things that we'll be discussing today. In fact, it reminds me of my first year of directing the Seminary and Institute program in Nashville. Uh, I had high expectations and low education in terms of how to do things. And, and that gap was filled with what I, I called frustration. That became my mantra that first year. Expectation without education equals frustration. And my frustration came in, I just didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. My responsibility there, my stewardship, if we want to use a, a scriptural term, was essentially to make sure that every 14 to 30 year old, 14 to 18 there's seminary, 18 to 30 there's institute, that every 14 to 30 year old made it to the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. Yeah, that was my job. No pressure, right? Uh, but with an expectation that high, no amount of education would let me know exactly how to do that, right? And so the feeling like, I just, I don't know what I'm doing here. Now, for those within church education, we have a, a threefold mission for ourselves. Uh, one is to live the gospel. Everything grows out of that. Without that, we have no power in the classroom. But one, to live the gospel. Two, to teach effectively. And three, to administer appropriately. Uh, those three are probably in that order for a good reason. 
like I said, every other uh, skill or attribute or talent or gift grows out of our living of the gospel. Uh, we're, we're nothing, we're, we studied that last week, right? If you do it from by some other way, then it is not of God. Are you edifying? Are you worthy of the spirit? That's the only real power in your, in your preaching. And then teaching effectively. We're gospel teachers. And so we study a ton about methodology and content and so on. But that third one finally really started meaning something to me uh, when I was supposed to administer the seminary and institute programs in the South. And so to learn how to administer appropriately was going to be really important for me. Now, when I was there, we would have three meetings each year where all of the, the seminary and institute directors would come together from throughout the southeastern United States, and we'd get trained. And the three meetings coincided with those three responsibilities. Everybody's favorite one of the year was the Living the Gospel convention. Now, spouses were invited. We just talk about living the gospel and raising our children and, and, and just trying to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ so that everything else would, would flow out of that. Second place in everybody's mind was the Teaching Effectively Convention where we'd focus on methodology and content. We'd practice with each other. We'd try to hone our skills uh, so that we'd be able to be powerful in the classroom. The third, and honestly, distant third in most people's minds, was the convention that we would have on administering appropriately. Uh, I, I just remember sometimes the kind of the groans like, oh, okay, here we go. We're going to talk, talk about budgeting and time management uh, and, and training and meetings and, and all of the, the, the necessary evils, so to speak, of running a program for the church. At least that was the sense I got when I went to my first one of those. Uh, I, I kind of got this feel from other, other coordinators that are like, ah, of the three, this is the worst of the bunch. But well, I, guess it's, I guess it's necessary. And for me, I was like, you better believe it's necessary. I, I feel like I know how to live the gospel. I don't do it perfectly, but I'm grateful for the atonement of Christ. Uh, teaching the gospel uh, effectively, I, I feel like that's where all of our gifts lie as gospel teachers. That's what drew us into this profession. But administer appropriately? I have no idea what I'm doing. So it might be everybody else's least favorite, but for me right now, with high expectation and low education, leading to all kinds of frustration, will increase my education here. Please teach me how to administer this program. Actually, it reminded me of the end of the book of Exodus. The first, oh, 30-something chapters or so are great. Storyline, you have Moses in Egypt and the plagues and, and the, the Exodus, all, amazing stories. You get the Ten Commandments, some of the other law that Moses gives. But for about the last, all near 10 chapters or so of Exodus, it is a snoozer. No offense, Moses. Yeah, but because what it is, it's how to assemble the tabernacle, among some other things. Now, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an architect. And I love floor plans. I can pour over floor plans all day. But can you imagine, instead of seeing a, a drawing of the floor plan, imagine a floor plan written out in text that it needs to be this long and this wide and you do this and all. And that's the last 10 or so chapters of Exodus. It's the floor plan for the tabernacle without any pictures. And so it is just like, I mean, just really? Uh, it's supposed to be that long and that wide and this tall and you do this and then use these materials and these colors and put it all together this way. It's, it's hard to, to really find gospel principles there. They're there if you look. But what amazes me about those chapters is the Levites who were responsible to set up the tabernacle, wherever they, they settled for a time, you better believe they loved those chapters. Because otherwise, they had no idea how to do it. Instructions on administration might seem a little dull from the outside. 
But when it's your responsibility to administer, you better believe you are grateful for the kinds of administrative instructions that the Lord gives. All the theology in the world doesn't necessarily tell you how to run a church meeting. And for someone like uh, Bishop Edward Partridge, of course you are so grateful for the doctrine that is found in the Doctrine and Covenants. But if you have the responsibility of settling all these members who are moving into Ohio from New York and Pennsylvania, then I really want some instructions on that. And that's what we're going to start seeing today. In section 51, in fact, uh, it is addressed primarily to Bishop Partridge. See, the, the struggle, remember last week when we talked about Lehman Copley, this semi-shaker, if we want to call it that, where he goes on this little mini mission with Parley P. Pratt and Sidney Rigdon and, and teaches the shakers and, the, and they don't accept. And uh, Sidney Rigdon is okay with that. Parley P. Pratt's not okay with that. And, and Lehman Copley is really shaken up by that. No pun intended, shaken by the shakers. Uh, what ends up happening, though, is when he comes back home, and he had said, I'm going to consecrate my farm, huge property. In fact, it turns out he hadn't completely paid for it all. Uh, and when the, uh, the New York and Pennsylvania Saints were going to be moving in, and he said, oh, they can live on my property. There were a few strings attached. It was going to be a matter of, oh, and they can live there as they make improvements upon it as they start plowing fields or clearing timber, as they start setting up uh, fence lines and so on. And so they were starting to do that. There was, a, there was a lot of improvements being made. After all, they were here to consecrate as well. We, had, we have no land to offer. That's where Lehman Copley comes in. But we do have some, some sweat equity that we can provide to him and to the church in general. Well, by the time Copley comes back and decides, I know I'm not fully a shaker, but now I, I just, I'm deciding I don't fully want to be a Latter-day Saint either. And you Latter-day Saints who have moved in to, to let, stay on my land, sorry, but the deal's off the table. Of course, I am grateful for all the improvements you've made, but uh, you're no longer welcome here. And so you have these saints... Uh, typically, they're called the Colesville Saints because that's where they had come from in New York. That are kind of uh, in this between a rock and a hard place, kind of in limbo. Well, what are we supposed to do now? Well, if that's their concern, it's definitely Bishop Partridge's concern too. What are we going to do with them? So notice how the revelation begins in verse 1. Hearken unto me, saith the Lord your God, and I will speak unto my servant Edward Partridge, and give unto him directions. For it must needs be that he received directions how to organize this people. I mean, if that's not a, an introduction to a, an administer appropriately meeting, I don't know what is. I'm going to give him, he's my servant after all, and I've given him great responsibility, high expectations. But if it's low education, then it's going to be filled with frustration. And I imagine that Bishop Partridge was feeling some of that. So fill in the gap, rather than filling it in with frustration, fill it in with education. And then I'll understand what I'm supposed to do. Honestly, for any of us out there that are serving in, in leadership positions, whether it's in one of the auxiliary organizations or uh, priesthood leadership, please remember this. For the people's sake whom you are calling, we do a great job of seeking inspiration behind the callings that we extend to people. But I'm not sure if we do as good a job in giving them instructions on how to fulfill that calling. Perhaps it's almost too much faith in the Holy Ghost. Oh, the, you, between you and the Spirit, you'll, you'll understand it all. Well, remember last time when we talked about section 50 and people did have the Spirit, but didn't really understand exactly its parameters. It was hard to discern between true spirits and false spirits, between the way things were supposed to run versus traditions or, or philosophies of men. 
And so what is needed? Perfect word here, direction. It must needs be that he received directions. I do remember, I can't remember the name of the talk, but years ago, President Irene did give a talk. To those who are extending callings, make sure along with the expectation that you give instruction as well. Help them succeed. And here the Lord is trying to help Bishop Partridge succeed. In verse 2, it must needs be that they be organized according to my laws. If otherwise, they will be cut off. That seems to harken back to section 50 also. If it be by some other way, it is not of God. Well, if you aren't organizing yourselves according to the Lord's laws, some of that is temporal. But remember section 29, everything temporal is under the big umbrella of spiritual. It, it must be done in the Lord's own way. So, verse 3, Let my servant Edward Partridge and those whom he has chosen, in whom I am well pleased, appoint unto this people their portions, every man equal to his family, according to his circumstances and his wants and needs. Now, I see two halves in that verse. And the second half is the one that would probably perk up Bishop Partridge's ears. That's how we do things? Okay, the saints are, are flooding into Ohio. How do I distribute property for them? Well, they're all going to be appointed a portion. That's their stewardship, right? They're coming in and laying it all before the bishop. Here's my consecration. And then, Bishop, you give them back a stewardship. And how do you decide... This is where it gets really interesting, because if you remember consecration, its aim is to establish a Zion people. And a Zion people is going to be of one heart and one mind and dwell in righteousness and have no poor among them. There's a unity here. And with unity, we often think of equality. That's good. But with equality, we often think of equivalence. And that's not necessarily good. The difference that I'm trying to to bring out here is the difference between equality and equivalence. Equivalence wants to say everybody should get exactly the same thing. But the problem is we don't all need exactly the same thing. I didn't need to go out and buy a minivan until I had enough children to outgrow the sedan that we had before that. I didn't need to move into a bigger home until we had outgrown the little starter home that we began with. And this is going to be an essential thing for Bishop Partridge to understand. That we're seeking unity and equality. But it's not going to be equivalence. Not everyone is going to need the exact same uh, piece of property, the exact same responsibility. It's not going to be an equivalence of stewardships here. Instead, as he says in verse 3, it's going to be every man equal. So there's the equality side. But equal according to, so here's the non-equivalent side, according to their families. Because not every family has the same needs. And that can be number of children. It can be children with special needs, whether those are physical or or mental or emotional. Some families require a lot of additional attention and help than others do. Also, their circumstances. That kind of goes along with what I just described. And his wants and his needs. Now, in this case, wants seems to suggest not just, oh, I really like that. I, I, that what's your wish list? It's not, it's not his wishes. It's his wants in terms of what are you wanting. In our day, that just means something you desire. In this period, it was more something that you lack. I was found wanting. I was found lacking certain things. So some might come with, without as many needs. There's the wants and needs. And others might have more. So, Bishop, aim for equality, but don't worry about equivalence, because people's families and situations and wants and needs are not equivalent to begin with. 
So that to me is the main point of verse 3, but I do love the beginning of it, where it speaks of those whom Bishop Partridge had chosen. So whether these are counselors in a bishopric, which is what we'd probably think of, or agents that he's appointing to be of assistance, I love that it says, those whom he has chosen, so there's Edward's responsibility and the agency that he has exercised in making those appointments, in whom I am well pleased. So there's the confirmation of the Spirit saying, oh, good choice, Bishop Partridge. That right there is a beautiful contrary for any leader who's trying to make assignments or extend callings. I think sometimes we think, oh, it has to be 100% God, and I'm not going to do any thinking, I'm not going to do any studying, uh, that, that would be overstepping my bounds in a way. No, it's, it's got to be, a man must be called of God by prophecy and revelation, right? It's like, uh, article of faith number five. Well, that's true. We, we, they must be called by prophecy and revelation. However, that doesn't mean that the priesthood leader or the Relief Study president or the primary president just turns off her mind and doesn't think about things. The, the contrary to proof here is agency and inspiration. And, I, and you see them both. Remember section 9, don't just ask me, Oliver, study it out in your mind. And so I love here that these are people that Bishop Partridge has chosen. You've thought this through, you've, you've uh, analyzed strengths and weaknesses in those around you. And guess what, Edward, I am well pleased in those people. You have my, my confirming voice. And that often seems to be how things go. That as a bishopric, for example, we would meet and discuss and, and weigh options and we would, we would describe what we see as the best way to organize things or the people whose talents and gifts we recognize that would be a blessing in that calling. If we held back and, and waited and with blank slates uh, presented heavenward and said, we're not going to do any thinking because we don't want to get in your way. Uh, you just tell us and then we'll move forward from there. Well, where's the agency in that? Where's the, the growing up in God in that? So leaders, do your best to strike that balance. Those whom you have chosen, in whom the Lord is well pleased. Great combination. Now verse 4, let my servant Edward Partridge, when he shall appoint a man his portion, give unto him a writing that shall secure unto him his portion, that he shall hold it, even this right and this inheritance in the church, until he transgresses and is not accounted worthy by the voice of the church, according to the laws and covenants of the church, to belong to the church. Now that seems to be a mouthful, but essentially what the Lord is saying here is, Bishop, again, we're trying to strike this balance in consecration between uh, capitalism with all of its uh, ambition and zeal and private ownership, along with communitarianism with all of its equality, its unity, its selflessness and focusing on others. Verse 4 seems to suggest more of the capitalistic side, where if, if you give a person their portion, here is your stewardship, your inheritance, then let me also give you a writing to secure unto you that portion. We would call that title or a deed. And that, again, establishes the private ownership side of things. This belongs to you. Now, until you fall into transgression and are not accounted worthy by the voice of the church, because consecration is a covenant. And if you break that covenant, then where do you stand within the law of consecration? You've consecrated, you've, re you've received back a stewardship. Where do you, what do you do then if you're no longer part of the church? Verse 5 answers that. You can picture uh, Bishop Partridge thinking about this. Well, what about, oh, good question. Here's the answer. If he shall transgress and is not accounted worthy to belong to the church, 
He shall not have power to claim that portion which he has consecrated unto the bishop for the poor and needy of my church. Therefore he shall not retain the gift, but shall only have claim on that portion that is deeded unto him. Verse 6 then confirms it, Thus all things shall be made sure according to the laws of the land. Now the end of that, according to the laws of the land, is an interesting one. They don't live in a theocracy. They live in a democracy. It's not just Latter-day Saints in their own little private island being able to do things solely according to the laws of God. Well, we, we do live in the United States at the time, and there are laws of the land about property ownership and so on. And so we need to be able to follow the laws of God. That's what verse 3 and 4 and 5 seem to be suggesting. But also, according to the laws of the land, to make things legal. Kind of like when the church was organized back on April 6, 1830. Why do we have six members? The, the, the Whitmer home was filled with people. Why six names on the dotted line? Well, because that was the laws of the land in the state of New York. You want to start a religious organization, you need to have six members. Okay, we'll do that. So we're trying to balance that. But in verse 5, it's interesting the way he would describe it. Once you've consecrated, it no longer is your property. So you don't get it back if you leave the church. But once you've been consecrated too, once you've received your stewardship, that does belong to you. And so if you leave the church, well, it, it does belong. You've got the deed. You have the title. Now, I, personally, I wonder how much of this is the Lord helping Bishop Partridge clarify so that they can avoid some of the challenges of what's taking place with Lehman Copley. You see, even Lehman Copley didn't fully have deed and title to his, his own land. In that period, there was a certain sense of kind of squatter's rights, where if, if you've made improvements upon the land, then, then you own it. Well, that's a little tricky since it was technically, or I don't even know if technically is right, but it was technically Lehman Copsley's land, but these other saints are making improvements upon it. So does that improvement go to Lehman Copley? Does it go to the Colesville saints? Unfortunately, that was actually one of the things that, that the, the white settlers leveraged against the Native Americans. Because the way Native Americans approached land, it was like, who can own land? I mean, it's Mother Earth. It owns us in a way. And living that kind of lifestyle, it wasn't about fencing things and, and making the land your own. And so unfortunately, the, the American settlers would come in and say, oh, well, the, what do you mean Native American land? They haven't done anything to improve it. And so we can take it with, without any problem. Interesting the ways they were trying to justify taking things that, that did not belong to them. But you see the, the early saints struggling with this, with Lehman Copley and the situation of, it's yours, oh, no it's not, and well, we need to make this much more official and much more legal with titles and deeds and what to do if somebody leaves the church and so on. It is interesting how much we learn, not on the fly, but in the process of living. And all of a sudden something comes up and it's like, oh, how do we deal with that situation? Well, we think about it, we study, we work, and we turn to the Lord for direction, which is exactly what the Lord is giving him here. Now in verse 7, let that which belongs to this people be appointed unto this people. If, if it belongs to the church, let church members use it. You get a sense of, of missionary funds or ward budget funds and, and fast offering funds and things. That belonged to the Lord's people. Well, let it be appointed to be used by the Lord's people. And you get a sense in verse 7 that this is more of the capitalistic side. It belongs to us. Let's use it. And then the communalistic side of it, notice verse 8. And the money which is left unto this people. So now we're talking about a surplus. Let there be an agent appointed unto this people 
to take the money to provide food and raiment according to the wants of this people. So back to verse 7, just because it belongs to you, oh, it shouldn't all be appointed just to you if it goes beyond what we saw back in verse 3, beyond your family, beyond your circumstances, beyond your wants and needs. What do we do with that surplus? Well, there are agents appointed, chosen by priesthood leaders, uh, well-pleasing to the Lord, agency and inspiration there, and they're the ones who will take that surplus money, the surplus generated because of the capitalistic side of consecration, but then distributed because of the communalistic side of consecration, provide food and raiment according to people's wants and needs. Now, verse 9 is going to help uh, put these things in perspective of how we're going to do it correctly. Let every man deal honestly and be alike among this people, and receive alike, that ye may be one, even as I have commanded you. We're going to see some more hints along those lines shortly about some challenges to the rich and some challenges to the poor. Both the haves and the have-nots are going to, well, that's what consecration is for, to be able to bless both sides of the equation. But speaking of equation, there does need to be an equal sign here. That's what we're after. We want people to be alike, not equivalent, but equal, unified, that ye may be one even as I have commanded you. Remember, that goes back to where we first started talking about this in section 38. If ye are not one, ye are not mine. So we have to figure out a way to become one. And it starts with dealing honestly. Are you honest? I mean, Lehman Copley hadn't been fully honest, in at least not in terms of how he responded once he returned from this Shaker mini-mission. Uh, you, you said you would give the, your land and consecrate it, and now you're taking it back. This is going to be a struggle for a lot of the saints in Kirtland and lead to some of the problems and some of the apostasy that we'll see later on. Will people deal honestly one with another? Is that honestly your family circumstances? Are those honestly your wants and needs? Is that honestly what you have? You almost get a sense of Ananias and Sapphira from the book of Acts when people are coming to lay all that they have at the apostles' feet. That's the, that's the precedent that these saints are trying to follow. And yet Ananias and Sapphira, when they, when they say that they've consecrated all, but they are holding back part of what they said that they're offering, well, that's the, the lack of honesty that is going to spell the destruction of the law of consecration. Be honest in what you're giving. Be honest in what you need. Now, verse 10, Let that which belongeth to this people not be taken and given unto that of another church. Wherefore, verse 11, if another church would receive money of this church, let them pay unto this church again according as they shall agree. And this shall be done through the bishop or the agent, which shall be appointed by the voice of the church. Now that passage, 10, 11, 12, is an interesting one in terms of the, the, our church versus other people's churches. In terms of temporal things. And as they're told, don't take what be... I mean, 10 in some ways goes back to verse 7. If it belongs to this people, let it be appointed unto this people. Or in 10, if it belongs to this people, don't take it and give it to some other church. Now, let me, let me pause this there for a moment, because we no longer live, verse 10, the way the saints did then. And honestly, I am so grateful that that's the case. We do contribute to those outside of the parameters of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In Salt Lake City, years ago, uh, a Catholic cathedral, beautiful building, the Cathedral of the Madeline, uh, was in need of some repairs, and the church helped contribute to that. 
It's part of our shared heritage in, in Salt Lake City, Utah. There are places where the, the church has contributed to the community of Christ. There are historical sites, for example, that both communities treasure. And so we want to help contribute whatever we can to be able to, to safeguard those kinds of places. And on the largest scale, humanitarian aid. I still remember as a 10-year-old, this is 1985, and President Benson said, we're going to have a worldwide church fast, and it's not going to be a fast Sunday fast. Middle of the week, we're going to fast, and all the fast offerings we contribute are going to be taken to Ethiopia to help with the famine. Now, talk about taking money received of this church and paid to someone else outside of it. That's, that's exactly what was going to happen that day. I remember sitting in the cafeteria at, in my elementary school with no lunch as all my friends are like, Jared, uh, you didn't bring a lunch? Here, you can have my fruit snacks. And I'm like, no, it's okay. And they're like, well, what? Well, here, have, have my, my string cheese. And I'm like, no, no, I'm good. And they're like, what do you mean you're good? You don't have any food. And I'm like, uh, the, the Ethiopians. And I'm just kind of stumbling over explaining why I didn't bring lunch that day. But in one day of that, the saints raised $6 million that a newly called apostle named M. Russell Ballard was tasked with. He was the one appointed uh, to go and distribute that money to the poor and suffering in Ethiopia. As I remember as a 10-year-old being so moved that I got to contribute in some small way to that. But I will point out that 1985, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was in a very different position financially than it was in 1831. There is a sense of you have to be able to care for your own first. Otherwise, you will be a burden on other people. But once the church is able to care for its own, when I mean, you think about all that Lorenzo Snow did during his administration, for example, to emphasize the law of tithing so that the church could get out of debt that we did owe to other people. And then with time, we got to a point where, okay, we've paid our debts, and now we're finally at a point where we can provide for our own people. I also remember that as a young boy, when hearing that the church was finally at a point where we weren't going to be building our own buildings, we weren't contributing our, our own ward budget, that, that we were providing enough by way of tithing and offerings, that then the church could return back to every ward and stake on, on the planet, here is your ward budget. And it won't be equivalent, since some wards have far more youth than other wards do and so on, but it will be equal. You will be one here. And we were providing for ourselves. It was amazing to get to that point. But where are we now? I love the process that we've gone from in debt to out of debt, to meeting our needs, to be able to provide for our own, and now to a point of we can provide for others. I really do see that 1985 Ethiopian famine as the turning point. And to see what the church has done since then, to meet the needs of those outside of our church is such a blessing. It's taken, it took us a long time to get there, but the future is bright as far as the role that, it, I mean, it's the Lord's church for crying out loud. It is his kingdom upon the earth. Of course we should be involved in meeting the needs of the world. We're finally in a position to be able to do so. And I believe that it will only get better as time goes on and living this law of consecration as we covenant to do in the temple, to be able to offer our all. First, to meet the needs of our own, that's verse 7 and verse 10, but then also what to do with a surplus, 8 and 9. It's amazing to see what the church can be involved in. Now, verse 13, we'll see another important element to all of this. 
Again, let the bishop appoint a storehouse unto this church, and let all things, both in money and in meat, which are more than is needful for the wants of this people, be kept in the hands of the bishop. So this is where we get the idea of the bishop's storehouse. I still remember as a youth going to the bishop's storehouse and helping to stock shelves or to, to uh, fulfill orders and so on. It's an incredible thing. My dad's parents served uh, a service mission uh, in their retirement and ran the bishop's storehouse in the Bay Area of Northern California. And what's amazing about a bishop's storehouse, we're dealing with surplus here, right? Everything beyond what is needed, more than is needful to supply the wants of the people, it, whether it's money or whether it's meat. If you think about both money and meat, what happens to those things if it's a surplus? I mean, meat, I guess you can put it in the smokehouse, but at a certain point that the food's going to go bad. It needs to be used. Stockpiling those things uh, at a certain point is going to outlive its usefulness. Now, money's not going to go bad, but is it being useful? I mean, the fact that, yes, oh, it can sit in my bank account and accrue interest. Well, great. But the fact that it's even surplus for you means that you don't actually need it then. And other people really could be using it. So the meat can be doing more than sitting around getting moldy. The money can be doing more than sitting around accruing interest. It can be out blessing people who desperately need it right then. And there may be times when the bishop himself is the one in need. Verse 14 provides for that. Let him also reserve unto himself for his own wants and for the wants of his family, as he shall be employed in doing this business. The him in verse 14 refers to the bishop mentioned at the end of 13. So again, Bishop Partridge is consecrating all that he has. We'll see Newell K. Whitney doing the same with his store as he becomes a bishop for the church as well. And by consecrating all that they have, well, they need to receive a stewardship in return, just like everybody else does. And thus, he says in 15, I grant unto this people a privilege of organizing themselves according to my laws. Love that word, privilege. Living the law of consecration being able to offer our all and receive back a stewardship to continue to bless all is indeed a privilege. If we think back to what Elder Maxwell used to call the Malachi measure, remember Malachi chapter 3, if you give, if give the Lord your tithes and your offerings, he will open the windows of heaven so wide that he'll pour out a blessing greater than you have room to receive. Well, that's a privilege indeed. And to be able to participate with the Lord in consecration. That's the privilege of organizing ourselves according to his laws. Especially when you see it in context of verse 16. And I consecrate unto them this land. Now think about what he's just saying. Wait, I'm going to consecrate? Forget Lehman Copley and his farm. The, the earth is my footstool. It all belongs to me. And I will consecrate unto you this land. I remember years ago teaching a seminary class on the law of consecration, and I wanted them to, to kind of get a, a visceral sense of would this be easy or hard. And so I said, okay guys, we're going to play consecration today. Uh, I need all of you to open up your wallets or purses and, and let me know how much money you have. Uh, and that way we'll just do the math and we'll total it all up and we'll divide by the number of students and that's how much money we'll each get redistributed. And it was just really interesting to watch the looks on people's faces. Some were like, sweet, I came with nothing. I, I don't even have a wallet on me. And others kind of like, uh, 
do we really have to do this today? It's like, oh, you just got paid for your fast food job or you just got your allowance from mom and dad or whatever it might be. And it was, I mean, you could tell by the looks on people's faces who had money and who didn't. And, and just to think, so we didn't actually go around and redistribute money. That, that would be, I'm not the bishop appointed to this stewardship. But what was interesting is, again, to just see who's willing to do it and who's a little more reticent. And it all boiled down to, do I stand to gain or lose as a result of consecrating? I mean, there's human nature for you. And it was playing out right in front of us. Now, I said to them, well, maybe today's not the best day to do it. I mean, you didn't see it coming, right? So let's do it tomorrow. And uh, let me invite, oh, I don't know, let's have Steve Young come. With Steve Young's NFL contract back in the day, I thought there's a good example of a Latter-day Saint that everybody knows that thinks, oh, if he comes and he brings his wallet, I'm definitely coming to seminary tomorrow to consecrate. But, but that's the irony. If we only come thinking, what do I have to gain from this? And we're checking one another's checks, checkbooks, or even worse, oh, if we're going to consecrate tomorrow, I'm going to make sure I don't bring any lunch money. That way I won't lose anything. I'll only stand to gain. Well, if our, only concern, if our main concern in all of this is, well, will there be somebody consecrating more than me? So I come out ahead. Remember we saw that earlier, that the Lord made the world rich, the earth rich, that there's enough and to spare. We'll see more of that later on in the Doctrine and Covenants. But when the Lord says in verse 16, I consecrate unto them this land, he who possesses all things. Remember, isn't that how he introduced himself back in section 38 when he first starts talking about consecration to begin with? I mean, I'm participating here. So in section 38... I'm the one, the beginning and the end. I'm the one that looks upon the wide expanse of eternity. It all belongs to me. It's my footstool. And I will consecrate. How could we possibly stand to lose when the Lord participates with us? We just need to trust in his participation. And don't hold back our participation out of fear. Or especially not out of greed. Let everyone deal honestly so that we can be truly alike with the blessings that God is showering down upon us according to the Malachi measure. Now there's something else in verse 16 and in verse 17 that I absolutely love. Honestly, it's my favorite principle from section 51. Again, these are instructions for the saints, but what we're trying to do is find the gospel principles that are livable based on these directions that the saints are getting. The one that comes out of 16 and 17 has to do with time. So keep an eye out for it. Back to 16. I consecrate unto them this land for a little season. Hmm. Wait a minute. A little season? I thought you were trying to assemble and gather us all to the Ohio. Oh, I am. For a little season. Verse goes on. Until I, the Lord, shall provide for them otherwise and command them to go hence. Now that's actually going to happen in today's material. Uh, Ohio is only going to be a temporary landing place, especially for you Colesville saints that are about to get booted off of Lehman Copley's farm. You were barely here at all, and you're going to be asked to continue onward down to Missouri. We'll see that in a moment. But it's interesting that here's people who have just uprooted themselves. We're going to see the word planted often by the end of today's lesson. And here they come. They uprooted themselves from their homes in, in uh, New York and Pennsylvania. They're coming to replant themselves in Ohio. 
And here the Lord's saying, now nah, it's only going to be for a little season. I'm going to provide for you otherwise. I'm going to command you to go hence. I mean, there's three pretty obvious hints in verse 16. You're not going to be here for long. Now, if that was true of me, what would I do? Speaking of planting, I don't know if I'd plant myself very deep. Oh, just leave me in the container you got in the nursery because this is not the land I'll be growing in permanently. Don't plant me here because I'm going to be planted somewhere else later on. In fact, it sounds like I'm going to be planted there pretty soon. But that's where verse 17 teaches a profound principle. The hour and the day is not given unto them. Sounds a little like what he always says about the second coming. No one knows the day nor the hour. You don't know the day or the hour where you'll be asked to uproot and move and replant yourself elsewhere. Wherefore, he says in 17, let them act upon this land as for years, and this shall turn unto them for their good. Wow, you take 16 and 17 side by side, and he is teaching something incredible. 16 is, you're only going to be here for a little season. 17 is, but act on the land as for years. You see, what's the natural tendency if we know about 16? I always laugh when I go and stay at a hotel, because hotels have uh, a dresser with drawers. And I think to myself, who uses the drawers? I'm only going to be here for a night. Even if it's a couple of days, I usually just, you know, stick my suitcase somewhere and open the flap and there's my clothing for today or tomorrow or the next couple of days. I'm not going to unpack and put them in the drawers in the hotel room. I'm only here for a little season. Then I'll be provided elsewhere. I'll be commanded to go from hence. It's the idea of if I'm, if I know I'm only going to be on a ward for a little time, a little season, do I make friends? Do I ask for a calling? Do I sink down roots? Unfortunately, often we don't. This is just a holding pattern. Now, it can go both ways. It can be them thinking, eh, I'm not going to try to reach out or make a difference because I know I'm not going to be here long. It can also go in, in the direction toward those people where it's, well, if you're not going to be here long, then I don't want to waste my time, quote unquote, to establish a relationship that isn't going to last long. That's why I love verse 17. Act upon the land as for years. Not just because you don't know exactly when you'll be leaving, but otherwise it's truly wasted time because you're here for now. Make a difference. Those of you who served missions, think about areas where you only served for one transfer. You were there for a month or six weeks or whatever it might be. But did you just sit around going, well, I'm not going to unpack my bags because I'm probably going to get transferred next month anyway. I'm not going to try to get to know my companion because it's not like we're going to be serving our entire missions together. Why really try to reach out and make connections with the ward? And why, why try to uh, teach investigators and, and bring people into the church when this is just a temporary place for me? Hopefully that never crossed our minds as missionaries. It was, well, I might only have four to six weeks here. I better roll up my sleeves and start to make a difference. And it is amazing what a difference can be made in such a short period of time when you don't treat it like it's just a short period of time. It's one of my favorite contraries here, 16 and 17. On the one hand, little season. On the other hand, as for years, unpack your bags, sink down roots, make friends. 
as I might in my work in the Institute program I'm with young single adults and you want to talk about people who's who live their lives by little seasons it's young single adults that are the most mobile age group in the church within the course of a semester they can move into a new apartment and and have roommates and and date somebody and have a calling in the ward and a semester later they're they're off to some other place and starting all over again and I have seen both people who live by 16 only as opposed to those who live by 17. And it always was sad for me to see, oh, even like in the summers in Tennessee with the bug boys, as they're affectionately known, and people kind of coming out across the country during their summer uh, break from school to sell pest control or alarm systems or whatever. And they would come, and, and the vast majority wouldn't get involved. They wouldn't come to institute. They weren't very involved in the YSA wards there. And it was just like, well, I'm only going to be here for the summer. What's the point? But there were other bug boys that just threw themselves in. And it was like, well, I'm going to be here for two months this summer. So Bishop, put me to work. And let me come to institute. And let me come to church. And let me make a difference. My, my wife's cousin was one of the, he wasn't a bug boy, but he was a young single adult that spent some time living with us there in Tennessee. And, and Dustin was one of my favorite. Oh, if I had to, to put a picture next to verse 17, it would be that of Dustin Hodgkin. Uh, because he came and lived, acted upon the land as for years. You name the YSA activity, he was there. Uh, he was making friends uh, more quickly than people that had lived there for a semester or two. And, and I loved him for it. It was such a beautiful example of someone who, I'm going to take advantage of the time that I have. I don't know how long I'll be here, but I might as well have some friendships to show for it. I might as well have made a difference in, in a calling or two. So to anyone feeling kind of in flux in life, not sure of how long they're going to be, if you, if you know or fear or assume that you're in a place that you'll only be in for a little season, then my challenge, well, the Lord's challenge to all of us is make a difference there, no matter how short a period of time it is. It's a great way to live your life. Even when you have to uproot, at least you've grown in the meantime, made some connections, blessed some lives made a difference. I testify that it does turn unto us for our good, and it turns to others for their good too. He then ends this revelation, verse 18, Behold, this shall be an example unto my servant Edward Partridge in other places, in all churches. So I'm establishing a precedent here, but we're going to do this elsewhere as well. Verse 19, Whoso is found a faithful, a just, and a wise steward shall enter into the joy of his Lord, and shall inherit eternal life. Verily I say unto you, I am Jesus Christ, who cometh quickly. In an hour you think not, even so, amen. So like I hinted at earlier, this idea of the hour and the day not being known, as far as verse 17, how long you're going to stay in a place? Well, big picture, verse 20. You don't know how quickly I'm coming. You don't know yet. I'm coming in an hour you think not. So don't just keep putting eggs in some future day's basket. Prepare for my coming right now. And how do we do that? Verse 19 has such a beautiful list of attributes. Faithfulness, justice, wisdom. Be a faithful and just and wise steward, and you will enter into the joy of your Lord. Great possessive pronoun. The joy of his Lord. You'll inherit eternal life. You've shown that you can be trusted with that. This is like the parable of the talents. 
the master coming home and seeing, what have you done with the talents that I've given you? The, th the five or the two or the one. Do you have something to show for the time and talent that I've given you? Have you consecrated? Have you received a stewardship? Have you been faithful and just and wise? I hope so. Now, as if to dramatize just how short this little season in Ohio would be, at least for some, section 52 is another revelation that they are given to describe what needs to be happening in the meantime as far as placement is concerned. In verse 1, Behold, thus saith the Lord unto the elders whom he hath called and chosen in these last days by the voice of his Spirit. So we see the who, the elders called and chosen. We see the when, in these last days, time is getting short. And we see the how. How are they called? By the voice of his Spirit. It goes back to what we saw in chapter 51. These are people that Edward Partridge had chosen, but in whom the Lord was well pleased. Verse 2, what's the direction for them? The Lord says, I, the Lord, will make known unto you what I will that ye shall do from this time until the next conference, which shall be held in Missouri, upon the land which I will consecrate unto my people, which are a remnant of Jacob and those who are heirs according to the covenant. Oh, so we're getting some clues here. I love that he said, I'm going to give you some instructions of what to do between now and the next conference. Conferences really do seem to be, we've seen this so often from general conferences. These are our marching orders for the next six months. And there's a sense of line upon line and precept upon precept as we go from six months to six months. I'll tell you what to do between now and the next conference. And then, I mean, I'm not going to show you the, uh, the end from the beginning necessarily. One step enough for me, we sing in the hymn book. But let me tell you what to do between now and the next conference. And then this kind of, whoa, the next conference is going to be in Missouri. And not just, oh, that's going to be the location of the conference. That's going to be the location of the place where the Lord consecrates his land unto his people. The Lord's going to get even more specific in a moment. But it's there in Missouri that the Lord is going to consecrate his land for a remnant of Jacob. Remember the Lamanite mission. We're going to the borders of the Lamanites. Independence, Missouri was the gateway to the west into Native American territory. There's the remnant of the house of Jacob. Verse 3, Wherefore, verily I say unto you, let my servants Joseph Smith Jr. and Sidney Rigdon take their journey as soon as preparations can be made to leave their homes and journey to the land of Missouri. The leaders are going to lead out. Joseph and Sidney, you head to Missouri too. I mean, they'd barely gotten to Ohio and they're already being sent forward. Talk about a little season. Yeah, Joseph's going to feel that even though he's going to go to Missouri and then come back to Ohio. He's going to be splitting time between the, what becomes these two church headquarters. Verse 4, Inasmuch as they are faithful unto me, it shall be made known unto them what they shall do. That word faithful is going to appear seven times in this revelation. You've got to be faithful to the commandments that I give you, the instructions that I'm offering. In fact, I love how he puts it in verse 4. Inasmuch as they are faithful it'll be made known unto them what to do. Again, by six-month um, sets of marching orders. But there's all this sense of in as much, in other words, to the degree that you show you are faithful to yesterday's commandments, then I will give you tomorrow's commandments. Why would I keep throwing pearls before swine if you're trampling on the, the pearls that I've already given you? Show that you will follow instructions, and more instructions will come. Now in verse 5, 
It shall also, inasmuch as they are faithful, there's another word there, be made known unto them the land of your inheritance. Missouri is still a pretty big, uh, a wide swath, right? And so where exactly in Missouri is it supposed to happen? Well, be faithful to what I've given you. Go to Missouri, like I'm saying now, and there I will give you more instructions, since you've proven that you can follow the instructions I've already given you. In fact, it's my favorite thing about the placement of the Liahona in the Book of Mormon. If you look, I believe it's 1 Nephi 16, when they first see the Liahona, go back a few verses and notice the obedience that Nephi and Lehi had shown to that point. They had kept every commandment God had given, and now they're ready for more. Oh, good. You have mastered the iron rod. You've shown that you can perfectly obey the commandments that I lay out for you. You ready to graduate for the next, to the next level? Because here's a Liahona where the spindles will move and the words will change and sometimes it'll work and sometimes it won't. It'll work according to your faithfulness and diligence and heed but I can trust you to follow it because you've proven that you're trustworthy. You've proven that you're faithful. On the other hand, verse 6, inasmuch as they are not faithful, they shall be cut off even as I will, as seemeth me good. We'll leave the judgment there in the Lord's hands. Now starting in verse 7, we start to see the Lord establish some companionships, some missionary companionships as they're sent forth to share the gospel. And we'll see a lot more of that in this section. In 7, it's Lyman White and John Corill. I love that the Lord calls them both my servants. So my, let my servant Lyman White and my servant John Corill take their journey speedily. 8, here's another companionship. Let my servant John Murdoch and my servant Hiram Smith take their journey unto the same place, by the way of Detroit. Now the Lord is designing these companionships, putting them together in pairs, two by two, we saw in a previous revelation. But I love, like I said, the fact that both are referred to as my servant, that's huge. Yeah, if you're a full-time missionary and you're struggling with your companion, instead of thinking them, about them as my companion, like, oh great, I'm, I'm stuck with them, think of them as the Lord's servant. And if you can see them not belonging to you, but belonging to the Lord, oh, that would change the perspective as this is someone the Lord has called and chosen, placed with me. If we can be fellow servants, instead of just companionships, instead of some horizontal relationship that might be, uh, have some friction, that it's two vertical relationships and we're both fellow servants of the Lord. And notice also, uh, Lyman and John were supposed to take their journey. In 8, John and Hiram are supposed to take their journey. It says at the end of 8, unto the same place. So we have the same ultimate destination, which is going to be Missouri. But John and Hiram, as opposed to Lyman and John, are going to take their journey by way of Detroit. Now we're going to see a lot of this later in this section when a bunch of other companionships are, are organized. And they're all sent to the same ultimate destination, but along different routes. And I think that's a healthy way to see the journey of life. Now I'm not trying to uh, argue for relativism. I'm not saying that all roads lead to Rome. So just live how you want to live and eventually we'll all end up in the right spot. I heard a lot of people say that in the mission field. They'd say, oh, it's, it's like a mountain. It doesn't matter where you start on the base. As long as you're climbing, you'll end up in the, at the same apex, the same summit. And I remember thinking, wow, that's a great analogy. But I don't remember reading that one in the New Testament. Didn't Jesus talk about a, a straight and narrow path? 
uh, that few there be that find it. It, it. The Lord was not a relativist. But what's interesting here is there is a sense, though, of you do have the, the same ultimate destination. There is a land of inheritance I want you to seek. But I want you to go in different paths because of the people you will bless along your way. There is a contrary to be proven between unity in terms of destination and diversity in terms of route. Now, I'm not saying that your route should take you away from the commandments of God. The Liahona never does that. But perhaps that's why the spindles move and the words change. Because the message for you might be different from the message for me. Remember what we saw in section 51. It's according to your family and your circumstances and your wants and needs. And the Lord's overarching plan is identical for all of us, but your individual plan may be different. I need you guys to go through Detroit. There's some things that need to happen there. I need you guys, back in verse 7, to take your journey speedily, like beeline, get there as quickly as you can. So the callings you'll have, the experiences you'll have, the, the, where you, grow, you raise your family and how you do so, it's so different. I love what Elder Quintanel Cook said in a talk years ago to the women of the church. Because there's a lot of difference there. And sometimes there's a, a sense of you're not meeting the cookie cutter mold and so you're a, you're a less than. And, and I love what Elder Cook said. He said, do the best you can. And secondly, assume everyone else is too. That way you don't have to feel judged by others since you know you're doing the best you can. And you don't have to judge others since you give them the benefit of the doubt assuming that they're doing the best that they can too. Your life might look different from theirs, whether it's family size or employment outside the home or education or whatever it might be. Do the best you can, assume that others are doing the same. As we see here, the journey is meant to, to terminate at the same place, but some will go by different ways. As long as they are following the Lord's direction, their individualized liahona, eventually they'll get to the place that they need to be. Trust the Lord in that. Trust them and their ability to receive direction from the Lord in that. He says in verse 9, let them journey from thence, preaching the word by the way. No wonder he doesn't want them all to be in the same way, because then they're all meeting the same people. Go by different ways so that you can preach the word by the way. Saying none other things than that which the prophets and apostles have written, and that which is taught them by the Comforter through the prayer of faith. That seems to suggest a similar parallel to this contrary that we're seeing between the same destination and different routes to get there. Because now we're seeing teach the things that the prophets and apostles have written. There's the iron rod and the things that the Comforter teaches you through the prayer of faith. There's the Liahona. We've seen it before in the Doctrine and Covenants, the difference between institutional revelation, set in stone, it comes direct vertical through, through a prophet of God, and individual revelation, that it's you and the Spirit. So teach both of those things. If it's only the words of prophets and apostles, it's all fixity and no flexibility. But if it's all, well, this is just what the Spirit's inspiring me to say, and, and I'm not worried so much about what prophets and apostles have taught. Well, that's all flexibility and no fixity. If it's, if it's no de sing single destination, then we're just journeying wherever. But if it's you have to go in the same track, then there's no flexibility as far as where your individual journey is going to take you. Verse 10, let them go two by two. 
Let them preach by the way in every congregation, baptizing by water and the laying on of the hands by the water side. Sounds like missionary work. And then verse 11 puts it all in perspective as far as timing is concerned. We've seen that pretty often, right? I come quickly, or no man knows the day nor the hour. Verse 11, for thus saith the Lord, I will cut my work short in righteousness. For the day is come that I will send forth judgment unto victory. I love those personal pronouns. The Lord is taking his work into his own hands. I will cut it short. It's my work after all. I will send forth judgment unto victory. We've talked about this in prior lessons, that, that fascinating verse in Joseph Smith Matthew, where the Lord says, if I do not cut the work short, if I do not shorten those days, he says, then there shall no flesh be saved. We used the analogy in previous lessons about a, a sports game, for example, where your team is in the lead, but the other team has all the momentum, and you look at the clock and you realize, oh, there's plenty of time for them to come back and beat us. And it looks like they will. And what we want to do is just rush over to the scorer's table and accidentally unplug the scoreboard. Like, oh, out of time, bummer. <laughs> Again, if, we, if those days are not shortened, there shall no flesh be saved. No wonder here in verse 11, the Lord needs to cut his work short, but it must be done in righteousness. He wants to send forth judgment unto victory. We have to win this thing, and we will. And so in my perfect judgment, I will decide when to unplug the, the scoreboard. The reason I'm not doing it yet is because there are still people on the opposing sideline that have not yet come to their senses and repented and come over to our side of the field or the court. Once that happens, then definitely let's, let's judge it as the game over. Let's judge unto victory. Let's cut the work short. But that does mean that all the work that needs to be done, if it's being compressed into a, a smaller time period, cutting the work short, we've got more work to do than we know what to do with. So go out two by two, preach by the way, every congregation, baptize by the water, lay on the hands, do everything that you can to help people stop procrastinating the day of their repentance. That's what's forcing God to prolong the period, to give us more time to repent. But he still has to cut it short so that his judgment can lead to our victory. For years now, we've talked about hastening the work. But do realize that it's the Lord hastening it. It's not just us trying to pick up speed. It's the Lord is cutting his work short in righteousness. He is hastening his work. Now 12 and 13, he has a specific warning for Lyman White. Uh, later in life, we'll, you'll see some of Lyman's struggles uh, that lead him away from the church eventually. Uh, and here, again, so many of these little revelations that he gives to people points out some of the things that would have oh, kept them from falling down in ways that they later did. For, for Brother White in 12 and 13, let my servant Lyman White beware, for Satan desireth to sift him as chaff, similar to what Jesus said to Peter in those final hours. And behold, he that is faithful, there's that word again, shall be made ruler over many things. So Lyman, be careful, beware. Your faithfulness will see you through, but beware of unfaithfulness. And then 14, he says, I will give unto you a pattern in all things, that ye may not be deceived. For Satan is abroad in the land, and he goeth forth deceiving the nations. 
This isn't that far removed from what we saw in 46, seduced by evil spirits and doctrines of devils and commandments of men. Not far removed from what we saw last week in section 50, needing to know what true spirits versus false spirits. So here he's going to give you a pattern in all things. We'll see this later in, in like section 94, if I remember correctly. Uh, when the Lord talks about giving us patterns, we should, we should look for the pattern because that's how we're going to follow. That's the pattern we're going to follow on how we're supposed to live our lives. It's the beauty of any kind of pattern. My oldest daughter has taken up sewing and I'm amazed that she can make something that actually fits. And how does she do it? She follows a pattern. And here the Lord promises us one. Now it's a little tricky because in 14 when he says, I will give unto you a pattern. So I'm, I'm going to give you this. And then in verse 18, when he says, according to this pattern, and then 19, by this pattern, it's like, oh, so it, it, did he already finish? It's like he's establishing bookends here. He mentions the, the pattern that he will provide in 14. And then 18 and 19, he talks about the pattern in, more in the past tense. Like, oh, and that's the, that's the pattern. It's like, oh, okay, so the pattern then must be found in the middle, in 15, 16, and 17. But sadly, I think we often miss it. So keep your eye out for a pattern here. Verse 15, Wherefore he that prayeth, whose spirit is contrite, the same is accepted of me, if he obey mine ordinances. Then 16, He that speaketh, whose spirit is contrite, whose language is meek and edifieth, the same is of God, if he obey mine ordinances. Hmm. So are, are we starting to see a, a pattern develop here? A, a pattern, is, again, is something that you can follow in a bunch of different circumstances. It doesn't matter what kind of fabric you're using. Follow the pattern and, it, and it'll, it'll make clothing that fits you. So what, what patterns are we starting to see develop? In 15, it's to those who pray. In 16, it's to those who speak. And what's the common pattern for both groups? Number one, your spirit must be contrite. Humility is key. Beware, Lyman. Satan desires to sift you as chaff. False spirits leading you away. One of the patterns that will help you overcome that is your own contrition, your own humility, your willingness to look to the Lord for guidance and to leaders for guidance, both individual and institutional revelation. Iron rods and liahonas are being provided. So I love the other pattern in both verses he mentions, if you obey mine ordinances, that within the flexibility that exists in the church as we follow the spiritual individualized guidance, there are also ordinances. There are like checkpoints that, that yes, the, the journey may, may vary depending on the variables of family and circumstance and want and need and so on. But ordinances... Yeah, that's on everybody's list. Was it Elder Christofferson who just quoted Jay Golden Kimball in his last conference address about, I'm not always on the straight and narrow path, but I cross it as often as I can? Well, I, we better be crossing it at ordinance points. Those are those checkpoints, faith and repentance and baptism and confirmation and so on. That's what he was getting at back in verse 10. You got to baptize. You got to lay on the hands by the water side. Are you obeying mine ordinances? There's the fixity in the midst of all this flexibility. Add to that the phrase in 16 about being meek and making sure your language edifies. Does that go back to section 50? 
If it does not edify, it is not of God and is darkness. Are we starting to see a pattern to help us overcome false spirits? Am I humble? Am I open to the Lord's direction as I bind myself to him through a covenant relationship, through his ordinances? Am I seeking to edify people every chance that I can, building them up in the ways the Lord would have me? That's a good pattern to follow. Add to that verse 17, again, he that trembleth under my power, there's meekness, there's contrition, there's humility, shall be made strong. Weak things, strong, right? And shall bring forth fruits of praise and wisdom according to the revelations and truths which I have given you. By their fruits ye shall know them. What kinds of fruits am I bringing forth? Am I edifying? Am I leaving people better built, having grown up in God more than than when I found them? Am I doing it according to the revelations and truths which have been given, both institutionally and individually? The things written by prophets and apostles, the things given directly through the Comforter. We're we're starting to see all this come together. Then in verse 18, He that is overcome and bringeth not forth fruits, even according to this pattern, is not of me. So yeah, there's the bookend on the tail end. That's the pattern. And if you haven't done it according to the pattern, then it's not of me. If there's no fruit, if you've been overcome by the adversary, then 19, wherefore by this pattern... You shall know the spirits in all cases under the whole heavens. That's how we discern. That's how we know if it's truth or error that we're following. How do I know what kind of spirit I'm listening to? Think about the pattern. Is it based on humility or pride? Does it lead to a covenant relationship? The ordinances that bring forth an influx of the Lord's grace. That after all, is what ordinances are, a conduit for the Lord's grace. And what kinds of fruits follow? Does it edify? If it doesn't, then it is by some other way, and it is not of God. This is going to become increasingly important as missionary companionships are being sent out two by two. We all have the same destination. We have different routes to follow. We've got to learn to to follow the Lord's direction or we won't end up in that common destination. So wherever you happen to go, whether it's speedily straight to it, if it's through Detroit or wherever else it might be, make sure that you are following this pattern in all things. Verse 20 then, The days have come according to men's faith, it shall be done unto them. So faith is a key. 21, this commandment is given unto all the elders whom I have chosen. So it applies across the board. And then from verse 22 through 32, a bunch of these companionships are formed. Marsh and Thayer, Morley and Booth, Partridge and Harris, and on and on and on. I'm not going to read all of these. But as you do, As you look over these 10 or 11 verses, one of the things that you'll notice that keeps coming up, the Lord refers to each of them as my servant. We talked about that already. But to keep that in mind, this companion of mine, my ministering companion or a team teacher that I have, see them as a fellow servant of the Lord. Another common thread throughout these 10 or 11 verses, they're each told to take their journey It's a journey we're on. You've got to get moving. Where you are right now is just the place you're supposed to be for a little season. 
you got to move forward. I've often found that if we will provide the momentum, then the Lord will provide the direction. It's hard to turn, without power steering, it's hard to turn the wheel of a stationary vehicle. So take your journey. Let's get going. Another phrase that keeps coming up, preaching the word by the way. So don't just make a difference at your destination. Make a difference all along the way. That's why I'm sending you along different ways. You see, if we all have the same starting point and the same ending point, oh, to, to diverge and branch out and have different experiences along the way spreads the influence that the gospel can have through us. So preaching the word by the way, but then this other phrase, unto this same land. Yes, there are different paths to walk in life, different journeys that we're all on. But yes, there is a same land destination. So balance your flexibility with unity. Avoid the extremes of both relativism and rigidity. Prove the contrary here for yourself and assume that others are doing likewise. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, as pair after pair of companions are given similar direction, we then see in verse 33, Verily I say, let all these companionships take their journey unto one place. Same destination. In their several courses, different paths, and one man shall not build upon another's foundation, neither journey in another's track. Because again, that doesn't do much good as far as spreading the wealth. Uh, this is part of the scattering of Israel in, in pursuit, eventually, of the gathering of Israel. By sending out, scattering his children across the earth, they are able to make a difference wherever they happen to be. So then as the Lord begins to gather them, they are bringing their friends and neighbors with them. So don't build upon one another's foundation. Don't journey in another's track. Don't be the same kind of person that everyone else around you seems to be. When I was a brand new missionary, the assistant to the president that picked me up from the airport became one of my heroes. I just wanted to be like Elder Mendoza. I mean, he was incredible until the Spirit whispered to me, I already have an Elder Mendoza. And you're right, he is amazing. But I need an Elder Halverson, so be yourself. It's like when, when Aaron goes and meets with King Lamoni's father and he's like, I'm here to serve you, since that's what my brother did to your son. It really worked out. An Ammon missionary is one who serves first and teaches later. And King Lamoni's father is like, I already have servants. I don't need you serving me. I need you to teach me the gospel. And I, and I just love that sense of, I already have one Ammon missionary. I need an Aaron missionary. So don't be like everybody else. Yes, there is a, a common destination. Yes, there is institutional revelation that applies to us all. But follow your individual revelation too. Take your own journey and make a difference all along the way. Verse 34, this great promise, he that is faithful, there's that word again, the same shall be kept and blessed with much fruit. Kept and blessed. It's like Jesus said to the apostles, I've, I've ordained you that you should bring forth fruit. There's the blessed with much fruit part. And that your fruit should remain. There's the kept part. He wants long-term results after all, and not just a flash in the pan. Verse 35 seems a little out of place. Joseph Wakefield and Solomon Humphrey are told to take their journeys unto the eastern lands. Now, I think this is separated from the others simply because, wait, I thought the common destination was, was Missouri. 
Uh, last time I checked my map, that is southwest. Well, indeed. And eventually Wakefield and Humphrey are supposed to get there too, but they are supposed to now take their journey to the eastern lands. Their mission is going to look very different from the others, as far as direction is concerned. But notice 36, let them labor with their families. Perhaps that's the reason they're being called east. I'm not sure. Maybe their, their families are such that they can be more of a blessing if they go in that direction. Declaring none other things than the prophets and apostles, that which they have seen and heard and most assuredly believe, that the prophecies may be fulfilled. So they're still teaching the same truths that you are, things from the prophets and apostles. But they're going to be heading in a direction that to you might seem counterintuitive. Like you're never going to get to Missouri by heading east from Kirtland. And as the crow flies, that, that's, that's true. But again, if we can hearken back to Elder Cook's counsel about doing the best you can and assuming that others are as well, there are times that someone else's spiritual journey looks like it's heading in the wrong direction. It's counterintuitive. Now, there are those that are not just counterintuitive, but counter to the commandments of God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying, oh, and our flexibility should be so large that it can embrace immorality and, and injustice and, and so forth. That's not what I'm saying. After all, they're still supposed to be declaring none other things than the prophets and apostles have, have seen and heard and so on. But there is a sense I see, and often, in fact, verse 36, let them labor with their families there are times that within a certain family circumstance that, that exceptions must be made or flexibility needs to factor in. I don't want to be too specific here with examples, but if someone is following the Holy Ghost and doing their very best to, to bring their family to the ultimate destination, Missouri is still on the horizon for everybody. Even if right now it looks like I'm heading east, I want to get to God's ultimate goal. More importantly, I want to bring my family there too. So there may be times that in the short term, it looks like I'm doing something counterintuitive. Again, only the Holy Ghost can help you know if, if you're the exception in exceptional circumstances. Where your Leahona is, I know everybody else's spindle is going southwest to get closer to Missouri, some a little bit northwest to go up to Detroit and then head down or whatever the case might be. But, but east, that, that doesn't seem like there's any way you're going to end up where you need to go. Well, I'm doing my very best to labor with my family. And they may be struggling or they may have different views or different circumstances. Remember that? According to their families and their circumstances. And so I need to go in this direction. My ultimate goal has not changed, believe me. I'm doing the very best I can with the words of prophets and apostles. I'm doing the best I can to hold true to the things that I've seen and heard and most assuredly believe. I want those prophecies to be fulfilled, but I want them to be fulfilled within my own family also. And so if I have to journey east for a time, I'm not trying to justify incorrect behavior but I am trying to lead my family home. So if you're a Joseph Wakefield or a Solomon Humphrey, and you're wondering, why am I going in this direction when the whole church seems to be moving in that one? As long as you are doing your best to follow institutional revelation, words of prophets and apostles, so this is, it's so tricky to strike this balance, to prove this set of contraries. 
but I believe that this is what the Lord is asking each of us to do in our individual circumstances. Now there's something else here as we approach the end of this revelation that's going to lead into some things we'll talk about in a later one. And it has to do with people who don't just go in a counterintuitive direction, but truly do leave the path. A different journey with a different destination. And how do you roll with those punches? How do you make adjustments? Well, sometimes adjustments must be made. In 37, in consequence of transgression, so this isn't just flexibility, this is sin, let that which was bestowed upon Heman Bassett be taken from him and placed upon the head of Simon's rider. So some stewardships and responsibilities or gifts or talents or callings or whatever it might be can be lost because of transgression. In which case the Lord takes that and gives it to someone else. The work will still be done. Judas Iscariot was replaced in the Quorum of the Twelve. This missionary companion was replaced with a different one. We've seen it repeatedly, even on the highest levels. No one is irreplaceable here. So beware, be faithful, but also recognize that the Lord and his servants can make adjustments based on if someone is, is faithful or not, if someone is prepared to follow the Lord's instructions or not. Like I said, we'll see more of that in a later revelation. Verse 38, he then says, Verily I say unto you, let Jared Carter be ordained a priest. Also George James be ordained a priest. We've been talking about elders all this time, but it's not a one-size-fits-all. Other people are on different stages of their journey. So while you're sending elders forth, don't forget there's other people that are, that are making progress and are ready to become priests. We're all at different stages in our journey, and the Lord's okay with that. Verse 39 then, let the residue of the elders watch over the churches and declare the word in the regions round about them. And let them labor with their own hands, that there be no idolatry nor wickedness practiced. So some elders will be sent forth on journeys. Others are called to stay right here and watch over the church. I mean, you can still declare the word round about the churches, where you happen to be. But some are abroad, some are nearby. It's all the same work, but people have different responsibilities within it. Verse 40, remember in all things, so no matter where your journey takes you, the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted. For he that doeth not these things, the same is not my disciple. It's important that in the midst of all of this perfecting of the saints, watch over the church right here, the proclaiming of the gospel, go forth and spread the word two by two. They don't yet know about redeeming the dead. I'll get that later. But we're already seeing what it took till President Thomas S. Monson to become a full-fledged a full fourth function of the church to care for the poor and the needy. Remember King Benjamin taught that. After that incredible spiritual address, it's, but you better not forget the poor and the needy, or all this spirituality has come to naught. This is in the midst of explaining the law of consecration, after all. 41, one more piece of instruction. Again, let my servants Joseph Smith Jr. and Sidney Rigdon and Edward Partridge, so these are the big guns, leaders of the church, let them take with them a recommend from the church and that there be one obtained for my servant Oliver Cowdery also. So like, no matter how high you happen to be, it's like, here's name recognition. I mean, you go through all the other names that are listed on that previous page, and it's like, I barely know any of them. But these ones, yeah, I recognize Joseph and Sidney and Edward and Oliver. Well, as you're leaving one area of the church, Kirtland, to go to journey to another area of the church, Missouri, you need to take a recommend with you. We saw that talked about back in section 20. And I love the fact that no matter how high you happen to be, 
leaders of the highest level of the church, they need to recommend to. It must be interesting to be President Nelson's bishop or stake president and sign his temple recommend. I don't know how all that works, but to have a recommend, now no matter what level of the church you might happen to be. Then he concludes 42, and thus, even as I have said, if ye are faithful, that all important word, ye shall assemble, we would say gather yourselves together, to rejoice upon the land of Missouri, to rejoice there, which is the land of your inheritance, which is now in the land of your enemies. Hmm, so there's some foreshadowing, some foreboding perhaps. Uh, it's going to be tricky there. Your enemies will not want you to come in to take this inheritance. But, verse 43, Behold, I, the Lord, will hasten the city in its time and will crown the faithful with joy and with rejoicing. Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and I will lift them up at the last day. Even so, amen. What did he say back in verse 11? I will cut my work short in righteousness. And here he's saying it again at the end. I will hasten the city in its time. I will. It's my work. I'm in charge. I am Jesus Christ. I will lift them up at the last day. Trust me. I've got this. Now, as hands-on as the Lord is, is willing and able to be, he still delegates responsibility. He wants us involved. Remember Jesus' words to John the Baptist. Thus it becometh us, you and me, to fulfill all righteousness. Now in section 53, we'll meet another person without much name recognition. His name is Sidney Gilbert, but he is called to participate in God's work as well. You see, Sidney Gilbert was Newell K. Whitney's business partner. And Newell K. Whitney will become a, a bishop of the church. Sidney Gilbert will actually have some important responsibilities too, but his name isn't listed back in section 52. And it'd be interesting, like kind of roll call at, at priesthood meeting and all these, and you and you pair off, and you and you go by this way, and everyone's going to, we're all going to head to Missouri together ultimately, but we've got a lot of work to do along the way. So ready, break. And they all break, and you're kind of left sitting there. And you're Sidney Gilbert going, um, my, my name wasn't on the list, and I'm just wondering if you have anything for me to do. And essentially, that's exactly what Sidney Gilbert does. He comes to Joseph Smith and is like, I wasn't mentioned in section 52. I don't have a mission companion. I'm not being sent on a journey to go build the kingdom. So what does that mean for me? Now, the hint back in 52 was, well, the residue of you elders stay and build up the church. But I do love that Sidney Gilbert took the initiative to go to Joseph and say, does the Lord have a mission call for me? This is like us going to the bishop. Can I, how can I serve? Where, where are the ward's needs? Put me to work, bishop. And that's what Brother Gilbert is doing with Joseph Smith. The Lord's response is brief but beautiful. Verse 1, Behold, I say unto you, my servant Sidney Gil Gilbert. So you're my servant too, even though you weren't listed in the, the previous revelation. I have heard your prayers. You have called upon me that it should be made known unto you of the Lord your God concerning your calling and election in the church, which I, the Lord, have raised up in these last days. I love that Sidney doesn't just go straight to Joseph but goes to the Lord first. He's been praying, what should I do, Heavenly Father? Put me to work. But not just going to the Lord, but also going to his priesthood leader. It's not one without the other. It's both combined, seeking individual and institutional responsibility. 
Well, what's the first thing the Lord tells him to do? I love this. In, in context, he's probably thinking, well, what journey am I supposed to be on? Who am I supposed to help? But notice the first uh, marching order that he gives him in verse 2. Behold, I, the Lord, who was crucified for the sins of the world, give unto you a commandment that you shall forsake the world. So before even thinking about going out and making a difference in the world, you need to forsake the world and its worldliness. This goes back to kind of what he said to Lyman White. You've got to beware because Satan wants to sift you as chaff. Perhaps this is a, an, another individualized warning. If, after all, Sidney Gilbert is a business partner in a su successful mercantile uh, operation with Newell K. Whitney, they run a store together, is there a certain concern that worldliness and materialism can creep into to the life of a businessman? But not just that, I, I, I'm amazed by the way the Lord phrases this in verse 2. The, the commandment he was trying to make was, you've got to forsake the world, Sidney. But the way he couches it, when he says at the beginning, I, the Lord, was crucified for the sins of the world, Wow. Does that put in perspective why we need to forsake the world? Because it was the world and its sinfulness that led to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Almost this recognition of, did I cause that? To, to look at what the Savior endured in Gethsemane and on Calvary and think, the, the world caused that? Then I don't want to be any part of the world. I want to forsake its worldliness. I want to go and preach in the world to make a difference there. In some ways, the question is, when you look at the atonement of Jesus Christ, do you want to be on the side of its cause or on the side of its effect? It was caused by the sins of the world. The effect of the atonement is to overcome the sins of the world to help people change and, and repent of their sins. So do you want to be part of the, the cause of the Savior's crucifixion or the result of the Savior's crucifixion? Now, sad but true, we're already, all of us, on the side of the cause. He, he suffered and he died for each of us, for the worldliness that we have succumbed to. But then to come to the other side and to see the effect of the atonement, that it has helped us find forgiveness through Christ's suffering for our sins. And it's the same true for anyone else, that we can share the blessings, the effect of the atonement, but we have to forsake the world first to be able to go make a difference within it. If we will, then verse 3 applies to us. Take upon you mine ordination. It's my ordination. It's my calling that I'm giving. But take it upon you. Take the initiative even that of an elder, to preach faith and repentance and remission of sins according to my word and the reception of the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. So there's the fourth article of faith, the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. Spread that news. Verse 4, also to be an agent unto this church in the place which shall be appointed by the bishop, according to commandments which shall be given hereafter. Again, you're a businessman. There's some of your natural talents and experience. You can become an agent unto the church. It'll be under the direction of the bishop, but you can make a difference here. Then verse 5, Verily I say unto you, you shall take your journey with my servants, Joseph Smith Jr. and Sidney Rigdon. They were called in the previous revelation to head down to Missouri. So Sidney Gilbert, go with them. In verse 6, Behold, these are the first ordinances which you shall receive. 
and the residue shall be made known in a time to come, according to your labor in my vineyard. Remember we saw that we get marching orders by every six months as far as conference to conference? Well, we often get that in terms of calling to calling. Right now, these are the first ordinances that you'll receive. There's, there's residue, there's more in the future, but it will come, it'll be made known to you according to your labor in my vineyard. How you respond to this calling may affect the kinds of callings you are given in the future. That goes back to the parable of the talents too. You've proven that you are faithful in a few things. You can now be trusted with many things. So future opportunities based on present performance. He then concludes in verse 7, Again, I would that ye should learn that he only is saved who endureth unto the end. Even so, amen. So again, this sense of present and future. And how you do now is so important, but you must endure to the end. Lehman Copley didn't. James Covell didn't. Lyman White won't. Sidney Rigdon will struggle. So many members of the church, that's their issue. Are we able to overcome the world? The world whose sins caused the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Can we choose to follow him and lay our hands to his plow without looking back like Lot's wife? Will we endure all the way to the end? Act on the land as for years, not knowing when that, land, that end will come. Will we give the Lord all that he asks of us? That's for Sidney Gilbert to decide and to prove. And the same is true for each of us. Section 54 comes next. And this is another piece of direction and instruction, specifically to those saints from Colesville who have left everything and are settling on Lehman Copley's farm and then finding that, oh, I'm not actually allowed to stay here after all. Talk about, I mean, the littlest of the little season was for the Colesville saints. Well, what are we supposed to do? Verse 1, the Lord begins, Behold, thus saith the Lord, even Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, even he who was crucified for the sins of the world. So a similar introduction to what Sidney Gilbert just received. But beyond that, I'm Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I see the big picture. Yes, you are in a rough situation right now. This is not what, what you pictured happening. It's not what I intended. I had called upon Lehman Copley. He had, he had committed, but he did not endure to the end. But don't talk to me about unfairness. What you're going through because of Lehman Copley's sins, yes, it's hard. But as, jo as the Lord will say to Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail, the Son of Man hath descended below them all. You want to talk to me about unfairness because you were booted off of land. Well, let me remind you that I am he who was crucified for the sins of the world, even though I had come to save them from their sins. You're getting blindsided here because you didn't see that coming. That's okay from your perspective, but I'm okay from mine. I do see the end from the beginning. I am the beginning and the end. So don't worry about what you've been through. Let's stop dwelling upon the past or the difficulty of your present. Let's look to your future. And verse 2, Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, my servant Newell Knight, who was the leader of this group of saints from Colesville, you shall stand fast in the office whereunto I have appointed you. So regardless of where that office takes you, whether it was back in Colesville, New York, whether it's here in Kirtland, Ohio, Thompson is actually the, the place where they're, they're supposed to be living. That's where Lehman, Lehman Copley's farm was. Or off in Missouri somewhere, wherever you happen to be, stand fast in the office where you've been appointed. 
Verse 3, if your brethren desire to escape their enemies, let them repent of all their sins and become truly humble before me and contrite. So don't just blame everything on Lehman Copley. There's some things that you need to work through yourselves, you Colesville saints. Yes, you have enemies that you need to escape from, but the ultimate enemy is the enemy of all righteousness. And the only way to overcome him is through repentance of your sins. It's almost like the Lord is hinting, Copley was not sufficiently humble. But that's his problem. You have problems of your own. So let me and Lehman worry about his sins. And let me and you worry about yours and repent of them. Now verse 4, as the covenant which they made unto me has been broken, even so it has become void and of none effect. Again, that's on Copley. He had promised, you can live on my land, I'm consecrating. But then he had broken that covenant. It became void. It was none effect. So what do we do from here? Verse 5, woe to him by whom this offense cometh. For it had been better for him that he had been drowned in the depth of the sea. Now that's strong language. But what the Lord is doing here is trying to get us to think back to the more famous time where he said this. This is Matthew 18, 6 and 7. Whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. He goes on, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. You see that whole passage kind of summarized there in section 54 verse 5? He's hinting to Lehman Copley and to anyone who wants to follow that path. Are you offending my little ones? Do you understand what these Colesville saints have been through? My little ones, they gave up all they had. They came trusting that I would provide. And I provide through my saints. I provided for you, Lehman. You didn't even own all the land. And they're helping you with, with improvements and so on. And yet you break your covenant. If it must needs be that offenses may come, but woe be to him through whom the offense comes. Yes, sins will be committed. Problems will, will be caused. But don't be the person who causes them. Lehman, that's on you. Beware how you treat my little ones. They needed your help. And you didn't give it to them. It goes on in verse 6. But blessed are they who have kept the covenant and observed the commandment. They shall obtain mercy. It's ironic there that in 6 it suggests those that don't really need mercy. After all, they're keeping the covenants and observing the commandments. But the Lord seems to admit there, I do recognize your weakness. I, I have been crucified for the sins of the world. And nobody completely overcomes the world without succumbing to some of its sinfulness. But as you try, as you do your very best to trust in my enabling power to help you keep the covenants and observe the commandments then I will offer you my mercy, that side of the atonement, to help you be forgiven for the times that you weren't able to keep the covenants and observe the commandments. We obtain mercy for our mistakes, in part because we do our very best to limit the mistakes that we make. Verse 7, he then says, Wherefore, go to now and flee the land, Scriptures talk about fleeing Babylon to come to Zion. Well, that's what the saints are going to be doing. Flee the land. Get out of Ohio. This is not the ultimate destination. Lest your enemies come upon you and take your journey and appoint whom you will to be your leader and to pay monies for you. 
You see, if Newell Knight is going to be off with Joseph and Sidney, then you're going to need to appoint a new leader to help get you along your journey, to, uh, to receive money, to pay money, just to lead this group of saints. Verse 8, And thus you shall take your journey into the regions westward, unto the land of Missouri, unto the borders of the Lamanites. That is the ultimate destination. Anyway, I'm sending all these missionaries in section 52 to get there. Now you Colesville saints who just started settling in Thompson, Ohio, on Copley's farm. Well, pick up and uproot yourselves. Sorry you didn't have much time to grow. Thank you for doing your very best to act on the land as for years. Putting up fences and plowing fields, you felt like you were going to live there. Well, you're leaving the land in a much better condition than you, than you found it. And that's good. Now head off and we'll find a new place to be fully planted. Verse 9, after you have done journeying, behold, I say unto you, seek ye a living like unto men, until I prepare a place for you. So you'll still need to provide for your families, even as I'm preparing to consecrate the land for you as well. Engage in your work, even as you're hoping to be involved in God's glory, the temporal, spiritual, it's all coming together. And then verse 10, again, be patient in tribulation until I come. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. And they who have sought me early shall find rest to their souls. Even so, amen. I love how he ends this revelation. To these saints who have been struggling and suffering because of someone else's inability or unwillingness to keep his covenants and the commandments of God, the Lord gets it. You who have been in tribulation, I was the one crucified for the sins of the world. Be patient in those tribulations as I was patient in mine. It won't be long. I come quickly. It'll be worth everything you've gone through. My reward is with me. You'll be glad you acted in faith even before you were able to see the end from the beginning. They who have sought me early, there are still marvelous good times ahead. They shall find rest to their souls. There is such beautiful reassurance in that brief revelation, section 54. Now, section 55, we get to meet another person that perhaps we're familiar with. We may or may not have known Sidney Gilbert, but the name William W. Phelps, whereas we often refer to him W.W. Phelps, that's a name we're probably familiar with in the church. His story is a fascinating one. He had been a newspaper editor uh, not far from Palmyra. He'd caught wind of uh, the Book of Mormon. It was the newspaper that were spreading the word on that, and as an editor, he would have heard about it too. But he went, and this is just within weeks of it rolling off the press. He gets a copy and begins to read, and he knows that it's true. But for whatever reason, he still hadn't been baptized yet. Ultimately, he leaves his edit editorship of that newspaper. Uh, he travels down to Ohio. I mean, even as a non-member, a, non a testimony-holding non-member of the church, uh, comes to follow the saints and gather with them. Makes me wonder about people out there who have not yet joined the church, but, but have a testimony of it. For whatever reason, whatever might be holding them back. At one point, W.W. Phelps even, he, he lists three words that I'll start with F. And perhaps these are some things that he's trying to overcome. He lists folly, fancy, and fame. I just think that's, that's an interesting list. The, the follies of the world. I keep making stupid mistakes. The fancy of the world? Am I being pulled in, in directions that, would, that humility and meekness would, would not allow for? 
and fame, again, trying to make my name with my newspaper and so on, and ah, to give that up and just to settle in with, with strangers, uh, for whatever reason, he hasn't yet joined the church. But when he comes to Joseph and asks for a revelation, notice what the, the first thing the Lord tells him. 55 verse 1, Behold, thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant William, yea, even the Lord of the whole earth, thou art called and chosen, and after thou hast been baptized by water, yes, we still need to do that, William, which if you do with an eye single to my glory, you shall have a remission of your sins and a reception of the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. And then, verse 2, you almost get the sense that, that the Lord is almost like, can we just get past this? Why, why haven't you been baptized yet? You know it's true. You got a testimony like a year ago when you first got your hands on the Book of Mormon. You've, you've given up your previous life. You've traveled and assembled, gathered with the saints. What's the holdup? William, I got work for you to do. In verse 1, you're called and you're chosen. You just haven't been baptized yet. Can, can we get the show on the road? Once that happens and you've been baptized with water and you have an eye single to my glory and you've received a remission of your sins and you received a gift of the Holy Ghost, then, verse 2, thou shalt be ordained by the hand of my servant Joseph Smith Jr. to be an elder unto this church. Not just an elder of the church, but an elder unto the church. It's, right? it's all about not just about who I am as a servant, but who I'm serving. What am I called to do? To preach repentance and remission of sins by way of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, three chapters ago, I was sending out uh, missionaries two by two like you wouldn't believe. It's not too late, William. I've got work for you to do, too. I've been, I've been wait, waiting on you. I, I've got, you're called, you're chosen. I just want you to be baptized so you can be ordained and sent forth to make a difference. Verse 3, on whomsoever you shall lay your hands, if they are contrite before me, you shall have power to give the Holy Spirit. You just need to go through that process yourself first. Wink, wink, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. So let's get going, William. I also love in that verse, if they are contrite, then you shall have power. That's an interesting one. So often we think that power in the priesthood is all based on the priesthood holder's worthiness themselves. And there's truth to that, right? The powers of heaven cannot be handled or controlled only on principles of righteousness. But it's not just the righteousness of the holder of the priesthood. It's the righteousness of the person that is seeking the blessings of the priesthood. I mean, as a teacher, I know this is a little different from priesthood ordination uh, or blessings, but as a teacher, I'm amazed at how much the effect the students have in terms of giving you chains or wings, depending on their preparation. I especially saw that in seminary when I was teaching the same lesson multiple times during a day. Because it was the same teacher with the same material, the same lesson plan. But some classes, it just went incredibly. And others, it just felt like it was a slog through the scriptures and, and nothing really powerful happened. There is power that comes because of a person almost drawing the powers of heaven through the teacher or leader or priesthood holder that is blessing them. If they're contrite, you'll have power. Think about the next time you ask for a priesthood blessing. Think about that if you are preparing to receive a patriarchal blessing. Think about that whenever you are a student in a classroom. And the effect that you can have as your faith and faithfulness, as your humility and contrition, just bring a blessing through whoever, whatever middleman or middlewoman is placed between you and God. Best case scenario, like we saw back in section 46 of these paired spiritual gifts, 
faith to be healed can often empower someone with the faith to heal. A gift of humility on our part can lead to a gift of power on the part of the person the Lord has called to lead or teach us. Such would be the case with W.W. Phelps. Now verse 4, again, you, W, <laughs> William, shall be ordained to assist my servant Oliver Cowdery to do the work of printing and of selecting and writing books for schools in this church that little children also may receive instruction before me as is pleasing unto me. Remember Oliver Cowdery, well-educated, had been a school teacher, so that's a perfect calling for him. And William W. Phelps, a newspaper editor, a writer himself, perfect person to be engaged in the work of printing and selecting and writing books for schools. Now there have been times when I've received a calling, despite the fact I didn't have any talent in that calling at all. And then the, the calling helped me develop those talents, to seek earnestly the gifts that I would need to fulfill it. And there's other times where I would receive a calling, not despite my lack of experience in an area, but because of my experience in that area. I'll admit, those are a little more comfortable. It's like, ooh, I'm already qualified, you know, somewhat, uh, to be able to perform this calling. Well, that would be the case here for W.W. Phelps. Your past experience, your, your expertise, it puts you in a position where you can make a difference from day one. I think we need to be open to both kinds of callings. The ones that are meant to help us develop talents or the ones that are drawing upon the talents that we've already developed elsewhere. Oliver and William will be a good team on this. But I also love the end of verse 4. It's for little children to receive instruction because that is pleasing unto me. I hope that is a wake-up call to every primary teacher, to every Sunday school teacher of the youth, to, to every parent who's trying to raise their little children. Instructing them in righteousness is a pleasing act to God. Mothers of young children, you particularly, Oh, my, I remember those days, uh, and my heart goes out to you because it's so physically demanding. And sometimes you wait and wonder to see, is anything coming of all of this? Rest assured that any act you perform to instruct little children, to help them come to know their Father in heaven, the principles of the gospel of his Son, those things are pleasing unto the Lord. Bless you for engaging in it. Verse 5, again, verily I say unto you, William W. Phelps, for this cause you shall take your journey with my servants, Joseph Smith Jr. and Sidney Rigdon, that you may be planted in the land of your inheritance to do this work. So Joseph and Sidney's group is growing. Sidney Gilbert's going to come with them. William W. Phelps is going to come with them. And they're going to be going to Missouri to be planted in the land of their inheritance. That's an important word that we'll see repeated often at the end of today's lesson in section 57. The Lord, again, has uprooted saints wherever they happen to be, either at the Colesville saints or here, W.W. Uh, Phelps, and I'm trying to plant you in a land of your inheritance. I want you to grow. I want you to sink down roots and make a difference. I want you to be fruitful and that your fruit should remain. He then ends verse 6, again, let my servant Joseph Coe also take his journey with them, and the residue shall be made known hereafter, even as I will. Amen. The residue made known hereafter. One step enough for me. What's the next leg of the journey look like? Well, I'll take it. And once I get to that proximate destination, perhaps the Lord will give me another clue as to where to head 
as I eventually try to find my ultimate destination. Now, speaking of journeys and destinations, section 56 is an interesting one because if you remember back a few sections ago when all these missionaries were sent out two by two. Now, the hardest thing about two by two is now you have two agencies intertwining. I often see this with my, my young single adult institute students as they're thinking about marriage and it's like, well, I'm ready to go. What's taking her so long or vice versa? And, and it's, it's, it's hard because it's not just, it's hard enough for me to use my own agency in the right way. But now when my agency gets coupled with somebody else's agency and it's like there's too many moving parts and what if, it, it's, it's really hard. But one of the most important things for us to learn since God deals with all of our agencies simultaneously. Well, the immediate context of section 56 is that one companion's using their agency well and their companion isn't. And that describes a lot of situations in marriage or in mission companionships or in whatever kinds of relationships there might be. Now, specifically, in that earlier revelation, Thomas B. Marsh and Ezra Thayer were called to be mission companions and head off to Missouri. Well, Thomas B. Marsh is ready to go. I think within nine days, he's like, okay, I've, I've settled my affairs here. I've gathered my stuff. I'm, I'm ready to go. And what's taken Ezra Thayer so long? Now, based on some hints here and in history, Thayer may have been trying to work out some details on some land holdings, kind of working through some financial details. I don't, I don't know all the details there. But Marsh is ready to go, and Thayer is, is just not. And then one other wrinkle. Remember we just saw that Newell Knight was, set, was told, you need to go with, uh, with Joseph and Sidney, and the Colesville branch needs to, to decide on a new leader. Well, the Colesville saints start freaking out, going, no, 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 you can't take Newell Knight from us. Uh, he's our guy. So it seems that they may have gone to Joseph Smith and voiced some of their concerns, like, well, we, we, we need Newell Knight with us. In response to that, Joseph Smith turns to the Lord, receives this revelation, section 56, which does some reassigning of things. You see, Newell Knight had been assigned a mission companion. I think his name was Sela Griffin. I think Sela is how you pronounce it, although I'm not sure. Uh, but if, if the saints still need Newell, feel like they still need Newell Knight, well, if we were to reassign him to stay in his present position as leader of the Colesville Saints, then what do we do with Sela Griffin? Oh, well, if Thomas B. Marsh no longer has a companion because Ezra Thayer is dragging his feet, then why don't we take Newell, Newell Knight's former companion and make him the new companion of, of Thomas B. Marsh? And then Ezra Thayer doesn't have to, it, you know, isn't slowing anything down and kind of this could work. And that's exactly what happens in section 56. Beyond the specifics of what's happening here, I do love the more general principle of how do you make changes to things that you felt guided by the Spirit to do when someone else's agency seems to be standing in the way of things. How justified was Ezra Thayer in his, his dragging his feet? I don't totally know, and it's not mine to judge. Uh, how justified were the Colesville Saints uh, in going to Joseph saying, no, you can't take our leader, we want him to stay with us? Uh, I don't know. But again, I'm not going to judge them for that either. But from a, from a logistical standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, again, from an Edward Partridge kind of a, you need directions to be able to know what to do. Same for Joseph Smith. What, what do I do here? I really felt from the Lord, I got a revelation that these were the companionships and the way things were supposed to be set up. But now agency is getting in the way of inspiration. So what do I do? Well, what do we do? We turn to the Lord for a continuation of revelation. It's not working the way I, I had been told. I have felt that at times with, uh, with extending callings. 
where we've discussed things as a bishopric. We've, we've done our homework. We've prayed about things and felt the confirming spirit that this is a, 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 the person for this calling. And sometimes, for whatever reason, sometimes it's just their agency is being used to know I, I don't want to accept that calling. Or sometimes it's just it didn't work out that way. Other circumstances came in that we hadn't been aware of. And it's like, but I felt inspiration saying to go in this, in this direction. What, what do I do now? Well, the Lord is still in charge. He's still over all. He can still adjust inspiration based on other people's use of agency. In some ways, that's all he ever does, since he doesn't control our agency. He works within it and can make changes. I mean, we've seen it before. If people are replaceable, if Joseph himself was warned, if you're not faithful, then you'll be replaced. Oh, then I guess Ezra Thayer is replaceable also. God can make adjustments. The person that I had hoped to call to that calling, well, they're not available for whatever reason. I'll turn back to the Lord and find someone else that the Lord has prepared to serve in this, in this position. Now, section 56 begins, Hearken, as so many do, O ye people who profess my name. I wonder if there's a hint there. You profess, are you following through? Will you endure to the end? Will you keep covenants and commandments? Hearken, O ye people who profess my name, saith the Lord your God. For behold, and then some strong language, Mine anger is kindled against the rebellious, and they shall know mine arm and mine indignation in the day of visitation and of wrath upon the nations. Strong language indeed. Is this just, oh, me changing plans? Or is there rebellion on my part? Rebellion to the point of causing the Lord to feel anger or righteous indignation. Was Ezra Thayer being rebellious? Were the Colesville saints being rebellious? I don't know, but that's, that's the, seems to be the hint that the Lord is dropping here. Verse 2, He that will not take up his cross and follow me and keep my commandments, the same shall not be saved. This coming from the same Lord who, in two revelations earlier and the revelation before that, he's repeated it twice, I am he who was crucified for the sins of the world. You want to talk about not wanting to do something. Oh, I, I feel it. You want to talk about taking up a cross to follow me? I had to take up a cross to follow my father, to keep his commandments, to offer salvation to humanity. It is not unfair of me to ask similar faithfulness from my disciples. Believe me, your cross is not one of crucifixion, but of inconvenience or of difficulty or of self-sacrifice, whatever your cross might entail, take it up. Follow me. Keep my commandments. I could not have saved you if I hadn't taken up my cross. And you can't be saved by me unless you take up your cross in similar ways. Verse 3, Behold, I, the Lord, command, and he that will not obey shall be cut off in mine own due time, after I have commanded, and the commandment is broken. And it's not that the Lord has to cut us off. We end up cutting ourselves off. Remember what President Packer always used to say, we're punished by our sins more often than punished for them. We have cut ourselves off from God because we're not following him. And that will happen sooner or later in the Lord's own due time. But then verse 4, what about those who are left with the, the fallout in their hands. Well, what, what did we do? Okay, they've left. They haven't taken up the cross. They haven't followed. They've cut themselves off. But we were counting on them. 
They had covenanted. They, now they've rebelled. What do we do? Well, verse 4 is an important principle for a lot of us. When we, when we try and fail or when someone else's agency has been misused, notice verse 4, Wherefore I, the Lord, command and revoke as it seemeth me good. And all this to be answered upon the heads of the rebellious, saith the Lord. Now, the, the first part of that is an, an all-important principle here. The Lord commands, and that's what we always associate with him. This is his direction. This is how it has to be. But because of our agency, when whether it's someone else standing in the way of things, we'll see that when they're off in Missouri and facing the, I mean, it is the land of their enemies. Remember he said that? And so trying to build a temple there against, in the face of an extermination order, for example, that's going to be impossible. Well, so we'll see this in later revelations where the Lord commands and then people stand in the way by, through their own rebellion or misuse of agency. Well, then the Lord can revoke that commandment. You tried, failed, I've got other plans now. It's okay. We can move forward. I do still have the same ultimate destination, but there's lots of journeys that can lead us there. And I'll bless people along the way. That's true of big picture church history and not just of small picture individual circumstance. But whatever it might be, when the Lord commands and you're ready to move forward and then he revokes. And that's something we don't often appreciate quite as much. Uh, when the Lord, if, sometimes it feels like, oh, but is he changing his mind? Well, or is it the circumstances have changed due to other people's agency, due to other circumstances? And so the Lord is going to revoke that command and give us a different one instead. I remember meeting an amazing mission president in Nashville who hadn't originally uh, intended, or well, no one intends, but hadn't originally uh, expected to be a mission president. He and his sweet wife put in their papers, said, we want to serve a mission. And so they were called to serve. There's the command. Then the command revoked might be too strong, but it was changed. As one of the apostles called and said, um, would, would you be okay with a change of your mission call? And they were like, well... Again, understanding the principle that God can command and revoke, certainly. And, they, and then the apostle said, would you be willing to extend it a bit? And they're like, wait, beyond the two years we signed up for? I, I didn't even know there were longer missions. And the apostle was like, well, yeah, there are, uh, when you're the mission president. And it's like, wait, wait, what? We were just, we just decided to go on a mission. We wanted to be serving a mission. I, I, as a mission president, are you serious? And what had happened is there had been a major health crisis. Uh, the wife of the previous mission president in Nashville had gone through just horrific uh, physical uh, challenges with miracle after miracle after miracle taking place in the hospital and in the mission. Oh, the, the, the previous mission president and his wife were in truly celestial saints. But so was this new couple called to succeed them in the mission field. In fact, I was so amazed that it's one thing to accept the Lord's call as a mission president. Like, wow, I, I'm, this is kind of coming out of the blue. I hadn't intended to do this, but sure, I'll serve. It's another thing to almost, oh, I don't know, to, to jumpstart the process, if for lack of a better phrase, that I'm willing to serve and I'm going to go serve a mission wherever the Lord needs me. And in this couple's case, oh, I need you in ways that, that you hadn't initially intended. And so the original assignment was changed. The original calling was altered. A commandment was given and then revoked. Do we trust the Lord when he revokes commandments? 
as much as we trust him when he gives them in the first place? Do we trust an apostle when they change a missionary assignment to the same degree that we trusted him when he gave us our initial call? Do we trust a priesthood leader or an auxiliary president when they, when they change something? We had originally thought that this is where you needed to serve. We're starting to see some other things or some other things took place based on other people's agency. We needed you here because we were going to call this other person to this, but they didn't accept that assignment. And then there are dominoes to fall. It's hard to run a ward or a stake or an organization. It's hard to run a church filled with people with individual agency and covenant keepers and covenant breakers and those that endure and those that don't and those that rebel versus those that are willing to do anything the Lord asks. There's a certain degree of needing to roll with the punches and readjust and, and, and reorganize whenever the, the, the need arises. I saw that in the mission field myself. When we had a, a list of here's the number of missionaries that are coming in the, the next month, and we're like, oh, that's an increase of missionaries, so we're going to need to create some trios, or do we create another area and send two new people in because we have more missionaries than we used to? And there'd be times that we'd, we'd make all the plans based on the information that we had, and then something came up. And sometimes it was that, well, we, actually that missionary decided not to serve. And so now we don't have the same number of missionaries. And, and so we're not going to open that area like we'd planned. Or we're going to need to make these adjustments and so on. Again, when you are dealing with other people's agency, you got to be kind of light on your feet uh, and quick to adjust. The Lord will command and revoke as seemeth him good. Are, are we good with that ourselves? Now, verse 5, he continues, Wherefore I revoke the commandment which was given unto my servants, Thomas B. Marsh and Ezra Thayer. That's not going to work out because Ezra is not ready to go. And I give a new commandment unto my servant Thomas, that he shall take up his journey speedily to the land of Missouri, and my servant Selah J. Griffin shall also go with him. So you've got a new companion now. Okay. Verse 6, For behold, I revoke, so he's going to do it again, the commandment which was given unto my servant Selah J. Griffin and Newell Knight, in consequence of the stiff-neckedness of my people which are in Thompson and their rebellions. So, okay, I, I wasn't trying to be judgmental. I was <laughs> trying to leave it in the Lord's hands. Well, he took it into his hands. And the Lord is accusing the Colesville Saints that are now in Thompson, Ohio, on Lehman Copley's farm. As he's pulling out the rug from underneath them, there is some stiff-neckedness and rebellion on their part. Now, next week, we'll see just how awesome the Colesville Saints are. I mean, they're willing to move again, I mean, repeatedly. That didn't work out, so I'm going to change things on you. And, and for them, it was like, oh, but now you're going to change our leader too? No, we want Newell Knight to stick with us. The ground keeps shifting beneath our feet. Can we at least hold on to our leader that we're used to? Now, the Lord wanted to make that change. I don't know what would have happened. Again, there's all these kind of alternate possibilities here that the Lord sees them all, but, but he wanted Newell Knight and Celia Griffin to be companions, to go on this mission together. Well, some rebelliousness, some stiff-neckedness on the part of the Colesville Saints. Now, we want Newell Whitney with us. And the Lord says, okay, fine. I will honor your agency. I'll cry repentance. I will chasten you for some of your stiff-neckedness. But I will honor that agency and then make adjustments as need be. Newell will stay with you. I'll break up that companionship. And since I had to break up this other companionship, then Newell Knight, or excuse me, Selah Griffin can then go with Thomas B. Marsh. And it's amazing to me how the Lord is making all of this work. 
And I see it happen in bishopric meeting and ward council and in leadership meetings all the time. It, it really is amazing. Verse 7, he continues to explain, Wherefore, let my servant Newell Knight remain with them. Fine, you can keep him. And as many as will go, may go, that are contrite before me, and be led by him to the land which I have appointed. Your stiff-neckedness and rebellion are, getting, are letting you have your way. Don't get used to it, though, please. Be willing to be humble, to be contrite, to be guided by me. Yes, I'll give you your way. At the end of the day, that's kind of where the Lord is left with it. I'll honor your agency. I just hope that you come to a point in life where you can finally honor mine and submit to the wisdom of God. He'll talk about that wisdom in the next revelation repeatedly. He then says in 8, Verily I say unto you that my servant Ezra Thayer must repent of his pride and of his selfishness and obey the former commandment which I have given him concerning the place upon which he lives. So the Lord is chastising him too. When he talked about his anger and indignation back in verse 1, he's getting more specific. Colesville Saints, I had to, make some, I had to adjust on the fly because of you. Your stiff nakedness and your rebellion. Ezra Thayer, I had to adjust on the fly because of you your pride, and your selfishness. Honestly, I think the Lord is constantly adjusting on the fly because of our unwillingness to truly follow his commandments, to take up our cross and follow him in the ways that he did. In some ways, God's whole plan of salvation was an attempt to allow him to adjust on the fly no matter how we used or misused or abused our agency. I will send my son to take up his cross, to be crucified for the sins of the world. All of your stiff nakedness and all of your rebellion, all of your pride and your selfishness, God is constantly commanding and revoking and adjusting on the fly so that his ultimate destination the land of our inheritance, and I'm not talking Missouri anymore, I'm talking celestial kingdom, can still be our ultimate destination no matter where our journey happens to take us, even when we journey away from the path that God set out. Verse 9, he continues to Ezra, If he will do this, as there shall be no divisions made upon the land, he shall be appointed still to go to the land of Missouri. So even amidst Ezra's pride and selfishness, the Lord is still trying to lead him back onto the path. Here's some things you shouldn't do. Don't divide up the land if that's what you're, you're worried about. There, there's still a path for you to, to follow. Go to the land of Missouri. Verse 10, Otherwise he shall receive the money which he has paid, and shall leave the place, and shall be cut off out of my church, saith the Lord God of hosts. If you, if you just want to end things, then I'm even okay with your agency to that point. And we saw that earlier on today that private ownership and deeds and titles, and if you leave the church, then you leave with what, whatever you were given as your stewardship. So if Ezra, if you're, if you're wanting to call it quits here, I'll even honor that agency. I just hope you don't go that path. Verse 11, though the heavens and the earth pass away, these words shall not pass away, but shall be fulfilled. Ultimately, God's will will be done. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we say in the Lord's Prayer. Well, it will be. God's work and glory, the ultimate goal. We're going to get to that land of inheritance. The question is, will you be part of it? 
where will your stiff neckedness, your rebelliousness, your selfishness, your pride, will that get in your way? It's not going to get in the Lord's way, but it might get in ours. Verse 12, if my servant Joseph Smith Jr. must needs pay the money, behold, I, the Lord, will pay it unto him again in the land of Missouri, that those of whom he shall receive may be rewarded again according to that which they do. You see, if we have to live things according to the laws of the land, then yes, there's money uh, passing, changing hands and consecrations and stewardships and broken covenants. And it's like, ah, I feel for Joseph Smith. What do I do here? Lehman Copley's doing its things there and Ezra Thayer's doing things there. I'm just trying to build the kingdom and run the church. Ah, the Lord has commanded. I'm trying to stick to the revelations I've already received. But now that I, that's not going to work because of their misuse of agency. Oh, now the Lord's giving me new commandments. He's revoked old and here's a new revelation. And but what about the money there? And the Lord's like, oh, put it on my tab. I mean, it's just interesting the way he phrases it in 12. Joseph, if you end up having to pay money, then I, the Lord, will pay it unto you again in the land of Missouri. It'll come by those who are willing to contribute, that have overcome rebelliousness and selfishness and pride and, and everything else. They will consecrate. And I will consecrate. I will reward them according to that which they do. But I do love that kind of Joseph is the one caught in the, in the limbo here. And the Lord's like, just trust me. I'll take care of it. You settle accounts here and, and whatever money you pay, I will repay. Amazing how much the Lord is willing to be actively involved in all of this process. So grateful for that. Verse 13, to those who are going to pay Joseph back, for according to that which they do, they shall receive, even in lands for their inheritance. So Joseph, if you are, are out money, you'll be paid back by others. And if they're out money because they're consecrating to you, then I will pay them back. Again, if the Lord is part of this from start to finish, believe me, it's all going to work out at the end. Verse 14, Behold, thus saith the Lord unto my people, You have many things to do and to repent of. For behold, your sins have come up unto me and are not pardoned because you seek to counsel in your own ways. Your hearts are not satisfied. You obey not the truth. You have pleasure in unrighteousness. You see what the Lord is up against? No wonder he has to revoke some of his commandments because he's dealing with us, changing mere mortals. We've got stuff to do. We've got stuff to repent of. We're not pardoned of our unrepented sin. It boils down to what he says at the end of 14. We seek to counsel in our own ways. Do I really have to do it God's way? Do I really have to submit? Can't I do it my way? Well, honoring agency, I guess you can. And then I'll do all the adjustment necessary on my end, saith the Lord. But how much better would it be if we could flip verse 15 on its head and have a satisfied heart instead of our own selfishness and pride and greed and, and re rebelliousness, wanting to make, things, make God do things our way. How much better if we were to obey the truth instead of disregard it? How much better to have pleasure in righteousness instead of pleasure in unrighteousness? I just pictured some, some poor distraught offensive coordinator on the sideline that keeps have to, having to check his play chart and call new plays because the athletes on the field keep messing things up. It's like, okay, that play didn't go according to plan. It's okay. I got a good second and 13 play. Oh, that one didn't go. I got a good third and 19 play. Ah, fourth and 25. Um, I even have a few of those. God is constantly adjusting on the fly, as we've been saying, because we fall short of living up to the commandments and counsel that he's given. 
Now, in the context of consecration, so much of that is financial. And we've seen a lot of that of who's going to pay back this and they'll pay him and then I'll consecrate and everything will be covered by the end. But the challenge is this inequality that, that people are holding on to. We've got the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, and both have some need of repenting. He speaks to both groups in the next two verses. Verse 16, Woe unto you rich men that will not give your substance to the poor, for your riches will canker your souls. And this shall be your lamentation in the day of visitation and of judgment and of indignation. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and my soul is not saved. He's channeling Jeremiah there. But riches cankering their soul? Uh, where moth and rust doth not corrupt? That, that's, that's treasures in heaven. But treasures on earth, again, if you think of moth and rust corrupting, it, it, to me it's interesting to just picture kind of this metal wealth that then begins to rust. And it, because it's so, so much a part of us, we're holding on to it, it begins to canker our own soul that rust starts to spread. And when judgment is finally passed, remember in a previous revelation, he talked about judgment unto victory. Well, that's not what he's saying here. Now it's judgment unto indignation because we haven't repented. So there's the problem with the rich. Now the problem with the poor, because remember President Benson, there's pride from above and pride from below, and both are going to cause some problems. Verse 17, woe unto you poor men, so if it's greed and selfishness on the part of the, of the rich, what is it on the part of the poor? Woe unto you poor men whose hearts are not broken, whose spirits are not contrite. See, so often it's the poor that naturally become humble. They've been brought into humility, but these ones are still fighting it. Their hearts aren't broken. Their spirits aren't contrite. Their bellies are not satisfied. You see, back in 15, your hearts are not satisfied. Well, 17, it's your bellies that aren't. You're trying to consume things for yourselves. Whose hands are not stayed from laying hold upon other men's goods. Whose eyes are full of greediness and who will not labor with your own hands. So selfishness among the rich bumps up against greediness among the poor. Self-serving ambition among the rich bumps up against self-serving laziness among the poor. Pride from above and pride from below. Talk about a, a collision of unchrist-like attributes. No wonder the law of consecration isn't going to work. Because consecration, as we saw in, in all these revelations leading up to this, it's both rich and poor overcoming their natural man. But if broken hearts and contrite spirits don't allow that to happen on either part, then of course you can't be one. And if you're not one, then you can't be the Lord's. We've all got some repenting to do. So the invitation in verse 18, Blessed are the poor who are poor in heart, whose hearts are broken, whose spirits are contrite. And the same could be said of the rich that need to develop the same attributes. They shall see the kingdom of God coming in power and great glory unto their deliverance for the fatness of the earth shall be theirs. Remember, I'm willing to consecrate the, my footstool, my, my rich earth, in all of its fatness, I want to share with you. But do you have an open enough heart to share what little you have with one another? In verse 19, 
Behold, the Lord shall come, and his recompense shall be with him, and he shall reward every man, and the poor shall rejoice. Their generations shall inherit the earth from generation to generation, forever and ever. And now I make an end of speaking unto you, even so, amen. Are you starting to see this theme develop in revelation after revelation as we've studied today? They almost all end with that same kind of idea. I'm coming. I'll take care of it. I, I'm with you the whole process, commanding and revoking and adjusting on the fly and making differences and calling and, and changing. And ah, Agency is a hard thing to deal with. But that's what the atonement is for. I came to be crucified for the sins of the world. Take up your cross. May have a broken heart, contrite spirit. Follow me. Become like me and things will work out. It's that fear of not trusting God. It's not going to work out that makes us cling to our own possessions or covet the possessions that we don't have. But the work does move forward. It has to. And by the time you turn to section 57, which is where we'll end our lesson this week, Joseph is already in Zion, Jackson County, Missouri. Once he gets there, he fully understands, wow, this really is Zion. The Lord told us that he would eventually let us know. Well, now he's letting us know. And to me, it's interesting that by the time you end section 56, it does seem to be kind of a mess with rebelliousness and stiff-neckedness and, and pride and, and selfishness and all these things and, and adjusting mission calls and making all these changes. But I love the fact that by the time you turn to section 57, well, come what may, I do trust the Lord. And if I have to settle some debts here and make some adjustments, God called me on a mission to Missouri, and so I'm going. You're welcome to join me. Uh, you're welcome to follow the Lord's command. But whether or not you do, I'm going to. And my hat's off to Joseph Smith that in the midst of all of this chaos and confusion, I'm going to do what the Lord commanded me. He told me to take Sydney and a few others and to go to, to Missouri. And that's where I'm going. And it didn't take him long. Uh, the Lord will adjust things and he'll make everything work out. I'm just going to do what he asked me to do and let the chips fall where they may. I trust, I, he, I trust him who sees the end from the beginning. And when he gets there, to Independence, Missouri, where the Lamanite missionaries had been, and some are there, are there now waiting for him, Joseph arrives and receives this beautiful revelation. Verse 1, Hearken, O ye elders of my church, saith the Lord your God, who have assembled yourselves together according to my commandments in this land, which is the land of Missouri. Now they've known everything up to that part already, but then the last line, it's not just Missouri, it's the land which I have appointed and consecrated for the gathering of the saints. Oh, okay. We've assembled ourselves together according to God's commandment. Well, we did that in, in Ohio. And then the Lord says that, well, this is just a little season, and then I'm going to provide for you otherwise, and I'm going to tell you to go hence. Well, there's still going to be people staying in Ohio. They're going to build a temple there to be endowed with power from on high, as commanded. But now this other group that's down here in Independence, Missouri, oh, this is the land which I have appointed and consecrated for the gathering of the saints, right here. And the Lord gets even more specific. Verse 2, wherefore, this is the land of promise and the place for the city of Zion. He gets more specific still. Verse 3, thus saith the Lord your God. If you will receive wisdom 
And that's the first time he mentions this. It's kind of, well, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you honor my agency by complying with it with agency of your own. If you will receive wisdom. Keep an eye out for that phrase. It'll come up over and over in this revelation. If you'll receive it, well, here it is. Here is wisdom. Behold, the place which is now called Independence is the center place. And a spot for the temple is lying westward upon a lot which is not far from the courthouse. Now, I'm amazed by these verses. There are times, and we'll see more of them later in the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord is really flexible and really open. Uh, later on, he'll call a few missionaries and say, hey, go to the north, south, east, or west. It mattereth not, ye cannot go amiss. It's like, wow, there's a flexible mission call for you. Well, this is the opposite. There are times where the Lord says, hey, it's totally up to you, it's fine. There are other times where the Lord says, right there, put a pin in it. Put my finger on the map and say it's Missouri. Not just Missouri, it's Independence, Missouri. Oh, not just Independence. Not far from the courthouse. Let me give you the latitude and longitude. Let me give you the address. That's where my temple is supposed to be built. The saints are learning something hugely important here. That sometimes the Lord has a specific place or purpose or person in mind. And that can't change. We'll see it more when the saints are driven out of Missouri. And what a, what a challenge that is. Almost this identity crisis for the whole church of, but that wasn't flexible. God said that spot was fixed. And now we're being driven away from it. What are we going to do? Well, we'll see that as history unfolds. But here, today, this moment, this is where you need to be. This is Zion, the place for the city of God. Now verse 4, wherefore it is wisdom, there's that word again, that the land should be purchased by the saints, and also every tract lying westward, even unto the line running directly between Jew and Gentile. Now again, if you look at your maps in 1830s, western Missouri is the edge between U.S. territory and Native American territory. But I do love that it's, it's not between pioneer and, and indigenous. It's not between American and Native American. As the Lord sees it, oh, this is between Jew and Gentile. With the Gentiles moving in from the east and the Jews, the remnant of the house of Israel, these Lamanites, kept being pushed further and further westward. So right here in Independence, start. And from there, begin to purchase land. Again, we've got to go by the laws of the land, too. We're not just going to set up stakes and go, hey, God said it's ours, so it's ours. No, purchase it. Okay, That's wisdom in me. We already talked about having deeds and titles for consecrated and property and stewardships and so on. Well, get deed and title on the land here in Missouri, too. Verse 5, it's not just heading west. Also, every tract bordering by the prairies inasmuch as my disciples are enabled to buy lands. Behold, this is wisdom, that they may obtain it for an everlasting inheritance. If I remember the report I heard years ago, uh, the largest private owner of land in the state of Missouri is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are trying to follow the Lord's wisdom and keep the laws of the land, even as we look forward to the coming of Christ and the city, the center place of Zion. Now, there's still some logistics that are going to need to follow. So in verse 6, let my servant Sidney Gilbert, remember him who came to Joseph saying, I wasn't called on one of those missions. What am I supposed to do? Well, I'm glad you came. I'm glad you brought your business savvy with you. Because in verse 6, let my servant Sidney Gilbert stand in the office to which I have appointed him to receive monies, to be an agent unto the church, 
to buy land in all the regions round about, inasmuch as can be done in righteousness and as wisdom shall direct. So there's the idea of wisdom again. Got to do it in righteousness or following the law. Buy the land, be an agent unto the church. Sydney, I'm, I'm grateful that you came because your skill set is perfect for this. Verse 7, let my servant Edward Partridge stand in the office to which I have appointed him. That's the office of bishop, temporal affairs, helping people settle on the land. That's what he says in this verse, to divide unto the saints their inheritance, even as I have commanded, and also those whom he has appointed to assist him. So the Lord has, is calling the right people to the right place to be able to do the right work. Verse 8, again, verily I say unto you, let my servant Sidney Gilbert plant himself in this place. And establish a store, that's where your background is, your profession, you'll be good at this, that he may sell goods without fraud. Remember, you have to do this in righteousness, we saw in verse 6, without fraud in verse 8, that he may obtain money to buy lands for the good of the saints, and that he may obtain whatsoever things the disciples may need to plant them in their inheritance. So there's another word that we're going to see several times in this revelation. Do it according to the Lord's wisdom and plant yourself. There's been a lot of uprooting going on in New York and in Pennsylvania and in Ohio and here in Zion. Plant yourself. Sink down roots. While you're at it, verse 9, let my servant Sidney Gilbert obtain a license. Behold, here is wisdom. Whoso readeth, let him understand. A license to send goods also unto the people, even by whom he will, as clerks employed in his service. We want all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed. Do it right. Verse 10, Thus provide for my saints, that my gospel may be preached unto those who sit in darkness and in the region and shadow of death. So provide for the saints, take care of your own, temporally, that my gospel may be preached. So now you're thinking of others and providing spiritually. Those two always go hand in hand. Verse 11, again, verily I say unto you, let my servant William W. Phelps be planted in this place and be established as a printer unto the church. So I'm glad that William came aboard uh, back in section 55 and now he's joining us here in Zion and he's going to establish a printing press here that will draw upon his talents. And I love that Sidney Gilbert, so glad you showed up. We need you. W.W. Phelps, so glad you showed up. We need you. We need your skill sets. And while there's, again, like I said before, times where the Lord calls us into callings away from our skill sets to help us covet earnestly other gifts. In this case, it's Sidney Gilbert, you're a businessman. So run the store. Uh, help uh, Bishop Partridge with the storehouse, since Bishop Partridge was a successful businessman as well. Uh, W.W. Phelps, you were a newspaper editor, a writer, a printer. So keep going. Use the, the experience and, and expertise that you've developed elsewhere and consecrate it to the kingdom of God. And so he does. Verse 12, And lo, if the world receive his writings, behold, here is wisdom. Let him obtain whatsoever he can obtain in righteousness for the good of the saints. Interesting if statement. If the world receive his writings. Some would. Uh, his hymns are famous in the church and well received by us. Many of his writings made such a difference. Others of his writings were rejected. 
particularly by the Missourians. It was W.W. Phelps who wrote a letter, or wrote a newspaper article, I should say, about blacks joining the church and coming into a slave state like Missouri was, and just warning them, we want you to join us, we'd love to have you come and gather with the saints. Uh, and that went so, that went, did not go over well with the natives, uh, the locals. The Missourians were so adamant that, the, what, wait, Latter-day Saints are trying to bring free blacks into the territory that are then going to uh, spook the rest of the enslaved African-Americans to, to rise up against their masters. I mean, this was part of what led to the expulsion of the Saints from Missouri, a racist slave-holding population that was not comfortable having people that were okay and open to a biracial society there, right there among them. So there were those that would not receive W.W. Phelps's writings. But all that he did write was meant for the good of the saints. Then in 13, let my servant Oliver Cowdery assist him, even as I have commanded, in whatsoever place I shall appoint unto him, to copy and to correct and select that all things may be right before me, as it shall be proved by the Spirit through him. So essentially, Oliver Cowdery is called to be an editor uh, along with W.W. Phelps. Phelps is out uh, uh, being established as a printer, but Oliver needs to help. I mean, Oliver has more experience in the church. He, he is the second elder. Through the Holy Ghost, he can prove the words of Phelps and others, copy it, correct it, select it. But I also love at the beginning of 13, I want Oliver to assist you. Now, if you go back to 55, which was W.W. Phelps's revelation, he was called to assist Oliver in assembling materials to teach the children. Remember that? And it's just kind of fun to think in 55, it was W.W., you know, William, I want you to assist Oliver. And here in 57, Oliver, I want you to assist William. And that's, that to me is a beautiful companionship where each person feels the, the calling of God to assist one another. That it doesn't have to necessarily be senior and junior companion, but among equals, we're all trying to do the Lord's work in the best way that we can. We'll assist one another in that. He then says in 14, Thus let those of whom I have spoken be planted in the land of Zion, as speedily as can be, with their families to do those things even as I have spoken. And now concerning the gathering, so big picture again, let the bishop and the agent make preparations for those families which have been commanded to come to this land as soon as possible and plant them in their inheritance. We've got work to do. The saints are gathering. The Colesville saints are leaving Copley's farm and are going to come down as well. We've got all these missionaries that have been sent out two by two and uh, crisscrossing the nation on their way to this common destination. We've got preparation. To be able to make for equality without equivalence, to be able to provide for people's families according to their circumstances, their wants, their needs. Whew, roll up your sleeve, Bishop Partridge and Sidney Gilbert and Phelps and Cowdery and everybody else. Verse 16, then he ends, unto the residue of both elders and members, further directions shall be given hereafter. Even so, amen. So again, like we've seen so many times today, I'm not going to give you everything. You won't know the end from the beginning, but one step enough for you, I hope. If you'll honor my agency by submitting your own to mine, if you'll follow the directions that I've given you, then I'll keep giving you more directions because you've proven that you're, that you're worthy and willing to accept them and act on them. You see what the Lord is really after. And these are the two words that keep coming up in section 57. Planted. 
five times in this revelation, and wisdom seven times in this section. The Lord wants to plant us. He is the gardener of Eden and Gethsemane. He is the gardener who is trying to, to, to reap where he's sown and trying to till the earth so that, so that stones are gathered out and the weeds are pulled. So there's no tares among the wheat. I testify of God's goodness in trying to prepare us for that kind of planting to help us sink down roots and make a difference no matter where we might be or how long we happen to be there. It is wisdom in him. And so this is part of that process I've hinted at before that so often the Lord has given commandments and we see that word often appear. But here, after he's, after he's told the saints, yes, I command. And then I have to revoke because agency has been misused that I am honoring people's poor decisions and trying to compensate for their sins, that I am atoning for their mistakes and adjusting so that the ultimate destination can still hold no matter where your journey happens to take you or as you would have it, wherever you choose to make your journey. I, I'm trying to bring you all home to a place where you can be planted in gospel ground and grow up as plants unto righteousness. I'm trying to create an orchard of trees of life growing within each one of you. And if commandment is too strong of a word, then how about wisdom? If you will receive wisdom, here is wisdom. I am grateful for a God of both omnipotence and omniscience. But one who restrains his own omnipotence to honor our agency, which then forces more and more weight upon his omniscience to make adjustments as we force upon him. I testify of that omniscience. I testify of that wisdom and pray that we may meet his wisdom with wisdom of our own to accept the counsel the commandments, the covenants, the advice, the hints of the Holy Ghost to move us in a certain direction. I testify that they will take us to the exact location where the Lord wants us to sink our roots. That is wisdom in him.